0: Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song by some fire one chapter. I am your host, Jack, better known as Pretty Big Fish.
1: And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 74th episode of the
0: Nauticast entitled Red Part Two, an analysis of the prologue to A Clash of Kings, in which the objectively rightful King of Westeros, God, I love saying those and is morally unambiguous we got to workshop that. We're going to workshop those lines there. Sorcerers begin their crusade to set the world to rights. There will be no complications whatsoever about this. Right, Emmett? I, mean, I, I, I feel like I, I don't read because I can't read.
1: I guess, Jeff. You know, this isn't a storyline in which I'm particularly invested. <laughs> so eh, we'll see how it goes. I'm going to be tuning out for the most part. I understand. Been, we've all been there before. Obviously quite the opposite in reality. We love this stuff so much we had to split it into two episodes. Last week we had read part one covering the first half-ish of the prologue. The introduction to Crescent and the setting of Dragonstone, Shireen, Patchface, Davos and so on. This time we're going to be covering the introduction of Stannis Baratheon himself as well as Melisandre of Ashai, and the chapter closing confrontation between Melisandre and Maester Crescent. So this one is going to be a bit longer than last one but uh, taken together they still would have been the, the most behemoth episode imaginable. So I think I think the, the split was probably a good idea and we hope you have uh, enjoyed the first episode and this one as well. Absolutely. If you guys are listening to these like years down the road after we record them this will be much
0: easier for you guys to listen to because you'll be able to to listen to part one and then gonna be like flow into part two but it just makes sense as we talked as i talked about last week that this is the second longest chapter in all of a song of ice and fire so putting this one to two parts felt like the right thing to do and i stand by that decision absolutely so as always this episode is brought to you by our small council our hand of the king wolfman zach grand Master tim bob lord commander of the king's guard mark n Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves. Sir Keith J, Master of Whisperers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch. Lord G, Master of Coin. And... Before I go any further, Lord Jean, congratulations on your on your wedding. That's really awesome that you got married. Good luck and many happy years in patrimony, in, in I guess. That's, I, is that the way that you put it? I think so. Absolutely. We're so happy for you, buddy. Congratulations. Yeah. So Archbaser June, Healer of Lester Poxes, Ragged Michael, Wern of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Baby, the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart, the Defiant, Master of Zorus, Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Jim that was promised, the Hybrid Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Xena Valyrian, Hedricle, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, and our two newest members of the Small Council. You heard that right. Two newest members of the Small Council, His Grace's Royal Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., and Lord James Stormborn, Warden of the World warden of the worldwide Werewood. Wow, that's a mouthful, but it's awesome, and it's a great name. Love it, love it, love it. Welcome, guys. Really appreciate it.
1: We're so happy to have you here. Frank, obviously, is one of our uh, great uh, Song of Ice and Fire friends, and we're so happy to have him on the council. And Lord James, welcome as well. It's it's a unique form of torture to make Jeff say warden of the worldwide weirwood every week, but whatever your kink. I,
0: I guess. I guess if that's what you want to do is make me, like, trip over my words. I don't do that enough in the main podcast anyways. You guys, you, you guys, if you were listen, ever listen to, like, the raw audio, you, you don't even know. You don't even know how much editing has to be done to get my voice to sound as good as Emmett's all oh, shucks. Thank you, councillors, very much, and welcome to our to our two newest members of the small council. Our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That's the five novels, three Duck Detective novels, histories, interviews, the Windswept sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and
1: everything. Our question this week comes from Septon Maribald, the shoeless maester, a brand new patron of our brand new High Lords and Ladies patron tier. And they ask... Burning question that I suspect you'll answer, or maybe have already answered. Why do you think George chose to introduce us to Stannis and Mel through Crescent's prologue rather than through Davos' POV? I adore the Crescent prologue, and it's interesting to see two major characters introduced through a one-shot character. And that's a great question. You know, unlike the Game of Thrones prologue, which was more introducing the others in general for the series rather than setting up a storyline on its own... Creston's prologue fo- flows directly into Davos' POV as he neatly takes over for Creston as our eyes on Team Dragonstone. So that begs the question, to use that term completely and properly, just deal with it, why have Creston's prologue at all? Why not use that for s- space and some other storyline if you already have this POV planned and just use Davos? What do you think that is, Jeff?
0: That's a good question. I, I think the reason why you want to do it is because, like I talked about last week, we're introducing a major A-plot. We're introducing three major A-characters, Stannis, Davos, and Melisandra. We're introducing a number of minor characters, celice Shireen, Patchface. We're introducing a whole, basically, we're introducing a whole cast of characters for A Clash of Kings, ones that we have not been properly introduced to in, in A Game of Thrones. And these characters are going to be in the narrative for a long time. That's, I think, the biggest thing that George is going for here is he wants to ensure that he gets these people properly introduced, which is why he makes this chapter so long. And to properly introduce them, he uses the perspective of someone who is the rational skeptic, the person who is the learned, smart guy. And at the same time, when he's doing that, as, think, I mean, as you talked about last week, and I thought it was a really interesting point, Maester Crescent represents the old era, the old way, so to speak. Not not the ironborn old way, the actual old way <laughs> with the Maesters and learning the Citadel, things the, the way that Westerosi normally had, have understood things in a rational, scientific, skeptical way. But here he's watching the hides, shift literally and figuratively with the introduction of Valor, with the introduction of Melisandre, and with the changing dynamic and characteristics of Stannis Baratheon, his sad, lonely son that he's watching fall and slip away from himself. And I think there's a lot of pathos, too, that goes into the idea behind Cress as a point of view character, that we see him being the father who's watching his son kind of depart in a way that's not necessarily positive for his son, that he suspects is not necessarily positive for him. But I think that's broadly why George chose to have Cress as opposed to a Davos point of view that introduces Stannis. And I think also, too, when you get to Davos' first chapter, which is amazing, really, really good – George doesn't have to spend four pages describing how how Davos brought in onions and salt fish to relieve the siege of Storm's End. Had got his fingers already removed because all that, that has already been established. He's able to kind of go right into the plot of the burning of the idols on the beach, and then thereafter the different conversations that Davos has with the people on Dragonstone.
1: What do you think? Part of it definitely is that. Crescent stands in for this ideology that is counter to Melisandre's, and while Davos comes to hate Melisandre as much as Crescent does, and for some of the same reasons, the dynamic is not quite the same. Like, Davos isn't a learned man who is a rational skeptic and devoted to that worldview. His opposition to Melisandre is more in terms of the morality of her actions that he sees unfold over the course of the war and what they're leading to and how he has a different image of Stannis and how the war should be. So Creston's perspective is unique and I think establishes that dynamic between the secular and sorceress we were talking about that runs through Clash of Kings more effectively than Davos could have. And yes, it's that parental perspective that Creston has on Stannis, which is not only really emotional, but really important for keying us into Stannis' character and how a lot of his motivations and decisions in the present day are rooted in his relationship to Robert going back Mm. to childhood. And Davos, as well as he knows Stannis in the Present day just doesn't have access to that. He didn't know Stannis then. I'm sure he's picked up on it emotionally (laughs) in the same way that like Justin Massey, I think warns Asha, you should not bring up Robert around (laughs) Stannis. Like you pick up on it, but Kristen understands it at this bone deep level. And we're going to be talking about that in this episode that I think you really couldn't have with any other POV.
0: It's good that we have Crescent as a point of view character. I would have been sad if, if Davos had been the point of view character because that probably would have meant he would have died and we would never have Davos chapters in the song West and Fire. So we should be grateful that we have Crescent dying in Davos' place. Crescent is basically Jesus Christ is what
1: I'm trying to say. Crescent is that, that one random guy in White Harbor that the Manderley's executed instead of Davos right. that died in his place. Right. Absolutely.
0: So thank you, Sept and Marybald, for the question. Really appreciate you. And we appreciate all of our high lords and ladies in that Patreon tier. If you guys are interested in checking that out and what that actually means, you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOAF, where you can see all of our tiers and you can get things like early early access to episodes for all $5 and above patrons, bonus episodes for all $5 and above patrons, show notes And you get access to our Slack at our two highest tiers. And we will have t-shirts coming your way fairly soon, in which we will have for all of our $10 above patrons. And it will be available in other places as well for those who don't want to join our $10 above patrons. So thank you for the question. Really appreciate it. And we are on to the synopsis for the Clash of Kings prologue, part two. Chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder. Many who try to climb it fall, never to try again. The fall breaks them, and some given a chance to climb, they refuse. They cling to the realm, or the gods, or love the illusions. Only the latter is real. The climb is all there is. Last week, it was Crescent, Shireen, Patchface, and Davos. And it was really, really good. I had a lot of fun doing that episode. This week, though, the king is coming in Acock. Okay, I'll just move on from there. Keep going. At the top of the stairs is Stannis' chamber, or quote refuge, as Crescent thinks of it. A great big room with a massive painted table in the middle of it. The table, fifty feet long, was carved out of wood by Aegon the First Targaryen and made to resemble all of Westeros. And in the middle of the room, seated in the chair, was a man in a tight laced leather jerkin and breeches of rough spun brown wool. When Maester Crescent, as when Maester Crescent entered, he glanced up. I knew you would come, old man. Whether I summoned you or no, there was no hint of warmth in his voice. There seldom was. And you know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to keep on reading. Stannis Baratheon, lord of Dragonstone, and by the grace of the gods, rightful heir to the iron throne of the seven kings of Westeros, was broad of shoulder and sinewy of limb with tightness to his face and flesh that spoke of leather cured in the sun until it was as tough as steel. Hard was the word men used when they spoke of Stannis, and hard he was. Though he was not yet five and thirty, only a fringe of thin black hair remained on his head, circling behind his ears like the shadow of a crown. Stannis had distinguished himself by cropping his facial hair tight and short to his face, and it hangs, quote, like a blue-black shadow across his square jaw and bony hollows of his cheeks. Crescent then goes to describe Stannis' eyes as, quote, open wounds, and his mouth made for frowns, scowls, and sharply worded commands. And then we get our first reference to Stannis not knowing how to laugh and that Crescent could swear he could hear Stannis grinding his teeth in the middle of the night. This is all so good. Crescent states that Stannis would have woken him up at one time, but now Stannis won't because Crescent is old and he needs to sleep. Stannis had never learned to soften his speech, to dissemble or flatter, and those that did not like it could be damned. All the same, Stannis knew that Cressen would find out what happened in the stormlands from Davos, and Cressen admits that he talked with Davos on the stairs. Stannis thunders about how he should have removed Davos' tongue too, and Cressen retorts that removing Davos' tongue would have made him a poor envoy. He may be a poor envoy in any case. The storm will not rise for me. It seems they do not like me, and the justice of my cause means nothing to them. The craven Ones will sit behind their walls, waiting to see how the wind rises and who is likely to triumph. The Bold Ones have already declared for Renly. For Renly! Friendly. Crescent says, Yeah, they probably did that because Renly's been the Lord of Storm's End for 13 years. They're his Bannermen. They're his Bannermen. Oh boy, bad call, Crescent. Stannis launches into a long rant about how the Stormlanders should be his Bannermen, given that he held Storm's End against Mace Terrell and Paxter Red Wine and nearly starved to death in that siege. And all Stannis got in return was fucking Dragonstone. Storm's End, the ancestral seat of House Baratheon, should have passed to Stannis by rights. Crescent notes that he is that this is a really old wound that Stannis keeps picking at. Yeah, there's the historical grievance, but there's also the pragmatic side too. Dragonstone and the Lords of the Narrow Sea didn't provide much in the way of soldiers. Even adding up the sellswords that Stannis bought from Essos, the host was too small to take on the lancers at King's Landing. So, Crescent decides to try a diplomatic approach, saying that Dragonstone needed a strong lord to hold it for Robert, and that Renly was a child, which then immediately... (laughs) (laughs) Which then immediately leads to Stannis bitching about Renly still being a thieving child, trying to steal Stannis' rightful crown. Which, not exactly wrong. Not wrong in the least, actually. But because the narrative allows me to indulge my dislike for King Terras, allow me to read Stannis' exact words on Renly Baratheon. What has Renly ever done to earn a throne? He sits in council and jests with little finger. And he dons his splendid suit of armor and allows himself to be knocked off his horse by better men. That is the sum of my brother Renly who thinks he ought to be king. I ask you. Why did the gods inflict me with brothers? Well, Crescent can't answer for the gods, which of course leads to Stannis clapping back. Are you guys noticing a pattern here of Stannis always clapping back? That Crescent can scarcely answer at all these days. Stannis asks who Renly's maester is, and Crescent says that Renly probably doesn't even have one. Which is true, I think. Because he's a chump who is, quote, heedless and acts from impulse. The polar opposite of Stannis. Stannis complains about how small his dick is um his kingdom is, and then descends from his lonely chair down to look at the map, with his shadow not at all honestly falling over Blackwater and the forest below King's Landing. Stannis stands there, brooding nearly as bad as Jon Snow did in a Game of Thrones and begins complaining about how <laughs> and begins complaining about having to eat with his lord's bettermen, quotes <laughs> such as they are. <laughs> I love that. Stannis lists off some of the Narrow Sea lords, a poor crop, if truth be told, and they're false. First, son, he's a pirate. Lord Sunglass, he's a religious fanatic. Celtigar, he asks too many questions. baroche, he annoys me with talking about the tides. Valerian, he's impatient, wants to attack now or go home. What must I do now, Stannis asks. Well, we'll focus on the prize, Crescent says. Attack the Lannisters, but join up with Renly. <laughs> no fucking way. Not while Renly calls himself a king. Okay, not Renly, Rob Stark. Fuck that. Rob wants half of Stannis' kingdom. But Stannis, go and avenge Ned and you'll... Why should I avenge Edward Stark? The man was nothing to me. Oh, Robert loved him, to be sure. Loved him as a brother. How often did I hear that? I was his brother, not Ned Stark. But you would not have known by the way he treated me. Stannis once again revisits how he held Storm's End, but adds the twist that big bro Bobby B never thanked him for holding the Baratheon Ancestral Castle. Instead, he praised Ned for lifting the siege. Then, after nearly starving to death, Robert ordered Stannis to build a fleet and attack Dragonstone. No thanks for that either. Stannis got blamed that Viserys and Daenerys Targaryen got away. And even after all that, Stannis sat as master of ships on the small council. An utterly thankless job. Was he then named head of the king? Fuck no. Robert galloped off for Winterfell and Dead. Father crescent and really you can see the finally aspects of Crescent coming out here, gently tell Stannis that he's been wrong greatly. But the, the past is past. My son. You could still join up with the Starks, and hey, what about Lysa Aaron? Maybe Petros should read to Sweet Robin and form an alliance that way? Even though Robin Aaron is weak and sickly, Stannis does consider this for a hot moment. He was going to foster the boy on Dragonstone after all, until, quote, Cersei poisoned John Aaron, and then that got squelched. Crescent puts in that they could send Shireen to the Eerie and away from the Grim Castle of Dragonstone, which uh, the Eerie is a little bit grim too, and maybe send Patchface along for the journey too. Yeah, maybe. Stannis almost seems to, like, soften for a hot second. Maybe it's worth... Must the rightful lore of the Seven Kingdoms beg for help from widow women and usurpers? Oh boy, hi, 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 Queen Celeste didn't see you coming in, and neither did Crescent. He begs apologies, and then Stannis scowls, saying he doesn't beg of anyone. Mind you remember that woman. Stannis, the wife respecter, everyone. Selyse says that she's pleased to hear it. Then we get some unkind descriptions of Selyse's appearance, big eyes, sharp nose, and a mustache that she plucks and curses regularly. She sounds off that the errands owe Stannis their allegiance, and that her royal husband shouldn't go off to plead a bargain with what is his, quote, by the grace of God. That talk of monotheism makes Cresson leery as he thinks about how Selyse has been captured by Melisandre and Rallor of late, and is now a zealot in Rallorite religious practice. Stannis, though, well, he ain't so enamored with R'hllor. He doesn't need God's grace. He needs swords. Crescent notes how unaffectionate Stannis is with his wife and how this was a long-term trend for Stannis. He barely wrote to Selyse when he was in King's Landing on the small council and only <laughs> of course, and only had joyless sex with her once or twice a year. Fabulous. Selyse says that maybe they should try to solicit the support of her family, that is the Florence, and how they'll rally to Stannis' cause. Okay, great, Stanisora says. That's 2,000 troops. Big fucking whoop. Besides, the Florence have lands deep in the reach. They ain't gonna risk Mace Terrell's wrath. Okay, fine, Sleece continues on. Well, let's focus our faith on the big ass prophetic sign outside the window the red comet. That is definitely Rallor's banner there, and it's your time to do some Azora highing, Your Grace. It's also very certain. Destroy Rallor's enemies. You got this. Embrace Rallor. You could do it. Yeah, yeah, sure, Stan says. How many soldiers or swords does Rallor have again? All you need, Sleece says. Storms end in Highgarden for a start. St- Stannis gets all frowny and tells Selise that the Stormlands and Reach are sworn to Renly, loving his kid brother like they did Robert, and how they never loved him. Yes, she answered. But if Renly should die? Stannis looks Selise over, but Crescent is horror struck, stating that these things shouldn't be thought. Yeah, sure, Renly's a piece of shit, but let's not get his but let's not let his follies they're not follies to Stannis. They're treasons. But he's still skeptical. Renly's got a massive fucking army and a full rainbow guard around him. While well, Melisandre has gazed into her flames and seen him dead. Crescent continues to be horrified. Please, please don't do fratricide, Stannis. Please, just just don't do that. Just put that out of your mind. And then Selyse asks Crescent how he's going to help Stannis win without a little fratricide. And mind you, Crescent, you can't sell the Starks half the kingdom or marry Shireen to Sweet Robin. And Stannis says that he's going to hear Selyse out. You are dismissed. <laughs> Love that. Crescent bends the knee and walks out, feeling Selyse's dagger eyes on his back. He walks down the steps, but when he, when he gets there, he's in agony. He begs Maestro Pylos to help him back to his chambers, once safe in his room, for the moment anyways. Crescent heads over to the balcony and sees one of Saladar-san's ships sailing outside until it vanishes around the bend. He wishes his own fears could disappear as easily. You see, Crescent has a fear, a fatherly fear. Sure, he couldn't have kids as he was a chain maester of the Citadel, but he considered Robert, Stannis and even Renly his sons after Stefan drowned in the Narrow Sea. Had he done so ill that now he must watch one kill the other. He could not allow it. Would not allow it. In Crescent's mind, there was only one person to fall for this. The woman. Not Solis. The Red Woman. Lots of people were scared to say her name, but he wouldn't be scared. Melisandre. Her. Melisandre of Ashai, sorceress, shadow binder, and priestess to the Lord, the Lord of Light, the God of Flame and Shadow. Melisandre, whose madness must not be allowed to spread beyond Dragonstone. His chambers now gloomy, which, when are they not? Crescent lights a candle and moves out over the workroom under the rock, under the rookery stairs. He digs around a shelf and finds a vial. He pulls the top and spills the crystals onto a parchment, shining like jewels. Crescent thinks that he's never truly seen their color before. The chain around his throat felt very heavy. He touched one of the crystals lightly with the tip of his little finger. Such a small thing to hold the power of life and death. The crystals were made on the islands of the Jade Sea. Their leaves were aged, washed in lime juice, sugar water, and bread spices from the Summer Isles. Then they were thickened with ash and allowed to crystallize. The alchemists of Liszt knew how to do it. The faceless men knew too. And the maesters of the Citadel? All the world knew that a maester forged his silver link when he learned the art of healing. But the world preferred to forget that men who knew how to heal. Also... Knew how to kill. Crescent can't remember the name the Ashai or Lysine gave the leaf and crystal, but in the Citadel, the poison was known as, quote, the Strangler. Put it into wine and it would suffocate the person who drank the wine, the, drink, the drinker's face turning as purple as the crystal itself. And would should you know it? But Cilice, but Stannis would feast with Celice and Melisandre tonight. Crescent decides he needs to take a nap to prepare for the ordeal ahead and he gets into bed, but as he closes his eyes, all he can see is bread. Probably the common, (laughs) or blood and murder. (laughs) Oh god, god, oh god. Crescent wakes as the sky is dark, his chamber's black. He pushes himself up with a headache coming on and realizes that he wasn't summoned for the feast. He he was always summoned for feasts. He was always there, close with Stannis. His lord's face sling up before him. Not the man he was, but the boy he had been, standing cold in the shadows while the sun shone on his elder brother. Whatever he did, Robert had done first and better. Poor boy. He must hurry for Stannis' sake. Cressen grabs up the crystals and putting them into his parchment and places the crystals and parchment into one of his hidden sleeves sewn into his garment. He starts shouting for Pylos to come, but no one answers. After shouting a bit, he finally calls for servants and they come. He asks Pylos where he is and states that he should have been woken, but he's really confused about what's going on. Crescent crosses the long galley again with the, with the night wind whispering around him and torches flickering about. Oh, and the red comet is still a fire overhead, which is a great sign. Crescent tries to shake off the idea that these are ominous signs, and how he's a maester. He doesn't fear signs of portents. Oh no! Crescent heads through the doors shaped like the mouth of his, <laughs> like a mouth of a stone dragon. But the great hall is, and boy, I gotta tell you, the imagery is not looking great for Crescent here. Crescent tells the servants to get lost, and then he goes through the quote gateway teeth. Guardsmen open the red doors for Crescent, and the maester walks through them, unleashing a sudden blast of noise and light. Crescent stepped down into the dragon's ball. Looks like all signs are pointing to Crescent getting away with this plan, right? Right? No, fuck no. Inside the hall is commotion. The clatter of knives and plates, Patchface, dancing and singing his familiar. The shadows come to dance, my lord, dance, my lord, dance, my lord. The shadows come to stay, my lord, stay, my lord, stay, my lord. The tables are crowded with knights, archers, sellsword captains eating bread and fish stew. But there is no laughter or shouting. Stannis wasn't up for that shit. Crescent heads on over to the raised platform where his lord sat with Stannis. He tries to sidestep Patchface, but tragically, tragically, Patchface lurches into Crescent, knocking Crescent's canes out from under him and sending them both sprawling onto the floor. Patchface's horned helmet comes bouncing off the fool's head. Everyone laughs. Patchface sings about how, in the sea, you fall up, which is not at all creepy. The old master smiles and attempts to rise, but his hip, the same hip he had broken previously, burns with pain. Suddenly, he feels strong arms lifting him up, and he begins to think the, quote, sir who lifted him, who lifted him up, but then he turns. Maester, said Lady Melisandre, her deep voice flavored with the music of the jade sea. You ought to take more care. Dressed all in red with a flowing flame-colored silk, a dark ruby that throbbed red, Melisandre's hair wasn't orange or strawberry. It was a, quote, burnished copper that shone in the light of the torches. Her eyes. They were red, too. The only thing not red was her skin. Silk smooth. White, pale as cream. Slender she was, graceful, taller than most knights with full breasts and narrow waist and a heart shaped face. Men's eyes that found her did not quickly look away, not even not even a maester's eyes. Many called her beautiful. She was not beautiful. She was red and terrible and red. Crescent hesitantly thinks Melisandre and Melko's all oh, be careful, old man, because the night is dark and full of terrors. Melisandre sings her line, baby. It's that line. Just love it. Crescent knows the line, too. Some sort of prayer or some shit, but it doesn't matter. He's got a faith of his own. He tells her that only little babies are afraid of the dark, but Patchface does that creepy. Shadows come to dance My Lord, leading to Melisandre to, um, joke around? Is that what she's doing here? Now here is a riddle, Melisandre says. A clever fool and a foolish wise man. She picks Patchface's crown up and places it on Crescent's head. Everyone laughs and Crescent gets angry. He forces his lips together to suppress the rage, thinking that Melisandre thought he was weak and feeble. But he's going to learn her something tonight. I need no crown but truth, Crescent says, pulling the helmet off his head. There are truths in this world that are not taught at Old Town, Melisandre says, turning away from Crescent in a, quote, swirl of red silk, which is a great line. The old bastard looks and sees that Pylos is seated in Crescent's normal place of honor, and he wonders aloud why Pylos didn't wake him. Pylos blushes, to his credit, and tells him that Stannis wanted Crescent to rest, and that he wasn't needed here. Ouch. Crescent looks over to Stannis' lords and swords, noticing how none of them will meet his gaze, thinking that they're all richly dressed, all but Davos Seaworth, our friend, who's wearing simple brown doublet and green wool mantle. You are too ill and too confused to be used to be, old man. It so sounded like Lord Stannis's voice, but it couldn't be. It couldn't. Pylos recounts me henceforth. Already he works with the raven, since you can no longer climb the rookery. I will not have you kill yourself in my service. I know, I, I know, I'm, I'm reading really too much of this chapter instead of summarizing here, but really, this next part is perhaps my favorite sad moment in this chapter. One of the sad moments in a Clash of Kings. Maester Crescent blinked. Stannis, my lord, my sad, sullen boy, son I never had, you must not do this. Don't you know how I've cared for you, lived for you, loved you despite all? Yes, loved you. Better than Robert even, or Renly, for you were the one unloved, the one who needed me most. But all Crescent actually says is, as you command, my lord. But he would like a place at Stannis' table at his side. I belong at your side. Davos gets up and offers his seat to Crescent, and Stannis agrees to Crescent's seating arrangement, turning away to talk to Belisara, who is, of course, seated at Stannis' right hand. Crescent realizes that he's too far away, and he needs to get closer to put the poison into her cup. Patchface capers about singing about here. Thinking about, up here we eat fish, but below, the fish eat us, which is again, totally not completely fucking unnerving, my god. Davos tells Crescent that they really all should be dressed in Patchface's attire tonight. So you see, Melisandre allegedly saw victory in the flames, and Stannis will move accordingly based on what Melis- based on what Melisandre saw. Trouble is, all that Davos can really see is what Patchface is seeing, the bottom of the sea. Crescent moves his fingers up his sleeve and feels the strangler crystals. He calls out for, quote, Lord Stannis and He gets immediately corrected by Selyse, King Stannis. Okay, well, King Stannis, fine. You need to make common cause with the Starks of the Arons. I make common cause with no one, Stannis Perathian said. No more than light makes common cause with darkness, Lady Selyse helpfully completes. Stannis does his complaining thing about the Starks stealing half his kingdom again, and how the Lannisters have already stolen his throne, while King Terrence Brendley has thieved away the swords and soldiers that were his. They're all usurpers. They're all my enemies. Crescent realizes that he's lost Stannis and starts thinking about how he could approach Melisandre. He needed to get to her cup, so he decides on an attack, a speech. You are the rightful heir to your brother Robert, the true lord of the Seven Kingdoms, the king of the Andals, the Royal and the First Men. But even so, you cannot hope to triumph without allies. Well, according to Selyse, Stannis has allies. The Lord of Light, Relor, he's got God on his side. Crescent states that gods are uncertain allies and relor has got no power here. You think not, Melisandre says as the ruby glows in the light. If you will speak such folly, maester, you ought to wear your crown again. Selyse shouts how they, that's exactly what they should do. Go fetch Patchface's helmet. Patchface says that no one wears hats under the sea and Stannis, oh boy, this one's a hard one even for Stannis fans to be cool with. He tells Patchface to give Crescent his crown. No, the maester thought. This is not you, not your way. You were always just, always hard, yet never cruel. Never. You do not understand mockery, no more than you understood laughter. Pause. Why are we standing as fans are here, here here again in just in a single sentence? You know,
1: Jeff, I've completely forgotten. Yeah, I'm
0: going to have to get to Davos' first chapter to have my faith in the king restored again. <clears throat> Patchface dances in on Crescent and puts the helmet on top of the maester's head, which is a really kind of creepy and sad and moment at this all at the same time. His neck begins bowing under the weight. Selyse says that Crescent should go sing his counsel, but Stannis not really redeems himself because he doesn't by saying that having Crescent sing is going too far. He is an old man and he has served me well, and I will serve you to the last, my sweet lord, my poor lonely son. And now Crescent realizes how he's going to do the deed. He reaches into his pocket and finds the crystal, grasping it between his thumb and forefinger. He reaches for his cup, praying that he'll be smooth. He drops the crystal into his own wine glass, knowing that no one but Davos saw. Mayhaps I have been a fool, Lady Melisandre. Will you share a cup of wine with me? A cup, in honor of your god, the Lord of White. A cup, to toast his power. Melisandre, quote, studies him. If you wish all lies on Crescent. He leaves his bench. Davos catches his sleeve, whispering, asking what he's doing. A thing that must be done for the sake of the realm and for the soul of my lord. He shakes Davos' hand off him, spilling a drop of wine on the rushes. Melisandre meets Crescent beneath the high bench, everyone looking at them, but he only had eyes for Melisandre. He sees all the red that envelops her and notices her red lips especially, curled in a faint smile. She reaches for the cup and Crescent feels her skin is hot warm to the touch, beaverish. It is not too late to spill the wine, mister No, he whispers hoarsely. No, as you will. Malassandra takes the cup from his hands, drinks long and deep. When she's done, there's only a little bit left. And now you. Crescent's hands shake, but he forces himself to be strong, to be unafraid. The wine tastes sour on his tongue. The cup slips from his hand, shattering on the floor. He does have power here, my Lord, and fire cleanses. The ruby shimmers red. Crescent tries to reply, but his words die in his throat. He coughs deep, terrible. then his breath becomes a thin whistle. He tries to suck air down, his iron fingers tighten around his neck. And you know, we have to do this. Let's just read to the end, shall we? As he sank to his knees, still he shook his head, denying her, denying her power, denying her magic, denying her God. The cowbells and the cowbells pealed in his antlers, singing "Fool, fool, fool," while the red woman looked on him with pity, the candle flames dancing in her red, red eyes, and that is the conclusion to the prologue to a clash of kings. Um, wow, I, 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 I I'm trying to find an emotion here. Okay, wow. That that is how you open a fucking book, man. Like that—that's amazing. That's so good. I mean, I, I I feel like I got a little bit too into the voices, so. But I mean, it's it's I just can't, can't help myself. I, I and mean, I feel like you know, I'm just gonna be embarrassed next week when it comes out for the public. But it's uh, it's amazing. It's so good. It's such a good fucking opening to a book.
1: I think all the prologues obviously have their great strengths and they're all wonderful in their different ways, but this I think is, is far in the way the best one, as I was saying last week. And even just reading two thirds of it for this episode in isolation from the excellent opening elements that we were talking about last week, just hearing you read that stuff is, is just spellbinding and spine tingling. That's, that's just the quality of it. And there's so much to talk about as with last week, but obviously our main focus is going to be on the introduction of the king himself. And, you know, it's I think the years of arguing and antagonizing and memeing about Stannis have kind of congealed somewhat. And we've kind of gotten calcified in our various camps, and we've gone over and over the same material endlessly. And we all have the same quotes we throw at each other. And I think something I want to try to do here is start for a fresh start. Here on the not a cast when it comes to this particular character, and I'm going to start with a bold statement: Stannis Baratheon is the single best written character in *A Song of Ice and Fire*. Not Jaime, not Catelyn, not even your beloved Sansa Stark.
0: Bold statement, but I mean, like we were talking about this in pre-production for those who were, were listening in for our high lords and, and ladies and our small counselors who get to like, listen to that little mini track that we release every week. Now, you, you know, it does feel like that. You're absolutely right that we have kind of calcified and that we're like in our camps now. Like we are pro Stannis or anti Stannis, and. I, I do think that Martin once stands to be intentionally intended Stannis to be a very controversial character from the get-go. But at the same time, I don't feel like maybe we're supposed to have be split in this kind of dichotomy of being we have to be well either fully on board with Stannis or fully against him as a character. Because that's not the way that George writes the character. And I think it's really important by ta- that we start before we even get into the prologue itself in talking about the origin story of, of Stannis, breath the meta origin story if you want to call it that
1: absolutely I think we should start by talking about Stanis' role in the story from what we know of the writing process and Stanis does not appear in the initial pitch letter for the series that George used to, to sell the story and few think he's going to have uh, few think he's going to turn out to have a major role upon Endgame we can debate how it's going to be similar to the show different from the show but few people think Stannis is going to be one of the people smiling and waving you know for, <laughs> from the end of the books towards the audience Davos is that character if Stanis mm-hmm. is not and he's he's very prominent in the, the wartime plotting, as George uh, sets out with the War of Five Kings, but he's mostly a blunt object for clearing other factions off the field, like Renly or Mance, perhaps the Boltons, rather than being the central focus of attention himself. And yet, Stannis has lasted for longer than any other of the titular Five Kings, unlike the show, which killed off Balen Greyjoy last He's involved in many iconic, memorable moments, and he's given more psychological depth, I would say, than any other non-point-of-view character in the series, except maybe Sandor. So that leads you to the question, why does Stannis exist? Why did George invent him after already coming up with the bones of the story, and then why keep him around for this long? And I think his primary purpose is thematic. I think he's, he's there not to be a part of Endgame, to be part of where things are going, but that he's central to how George is writing about leadership, prophecy, backstory, the intersection of all of the above. I think he's writing Stannis not because Stannis is important, is that important in terms of getting from point A to point B, but because he's trying to send a message with the character. And the message with the character is that Stannis is both hero and villain in the same skin. That he is both the solution and the problem. <laughs> And that ambiguity is weaved into every scene in which he appears or is even mentioned by other characters. You always see George making this point, that throughout Stannis Baratheon's story, his soul is on trial. And what makes that story work is that the author is making the case for both the defense and the prosecution, sometimes within the same sentence. Stannis' duality is manifested in so many ways, the archetypes informing him, the advisors surrounding him, as we see in this chapter, how his best and worst angels collide in his decision-making... George writes in this way, I think, is a grounding for the ethical struggles he's putting Stannis through. And those, in turn, act as echoes of and foreshadowing for the struggles of more central characters, particularly Jon and Daenerys. I think you could tell basically the same story without Stannis, but that it would mean less. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting, right? So, something that I heard a lot up in the years leading up to Season 8 of Game of Thrones was... Why does George introduce these characters that are not going to get to the end game of the series? Like, it just seems like it's just kind of narrative bloat. I, I, I don't think it's narrative bloat. I think they do inform the end game, even if they're not going to be there primarily. You talked about how Stannis' actions inform what ca- a character like John and Daenerys are going to do, who are definitely end game characters in the series. That's really important that we have that character archetype there and that example there, providing one form of guidance and pathway forward for these characters and also providing what they shouldn't do. For instance, not burning your daughter. That seems like a really bad idea. Like, <laughs> don't, don't do that. Don't do that. But, but I mean, like at the same time, like I know you've talked about this at significant length on Twitter and elsewhere about how, especially for Daenerys, how Stannis's whole idea of, you know, even if it is, even at the end of a storm of swords, how he decides to put the kingdom in, he puts the kingdom first before the throne. How that's likely going to be parallel to Daenerys Targaryen as she ends up fighting the others, as opposed to taking the Iron Throne for herself. As Season Eight put it, maybe that won't be the case. Maybe the sequencing will be different. In fact, I think we both have said we think the sequencing will be different. But we do think that Danny is going to put the defense of the realm ahead of the actual Iron Throne for at least for a time. That that's really important. But it's also kind of the same end state for Stannis and Danny too, right? I mean, Stannis's end state is. Well, we'll we'll get to that at the very end of this episode, but it's the burning of Shireen. The end state for Daenerys Targaryen is the burning of King's Landing. Like these, these are the end states that we have there. And we have that character archetype, which is helping to illuminate for us in a small minor, not, not minor, but in a smaller sense, what the larger narrative arc
1: is moving for these major characters. And it informs their decisions. And it's really important that Stannis is there. And I think it's, it's worked so well coming after Daenerys's last chapter in a Game of Thrones, something we were talking about last week in regards to Crescent and the Red Comet and Dragonstone and so forth. But if you think about it in terms of Stannis, it really makes that, that parallel between Stannis and Daenerys clear that, that Danny has this glorious sensation of the universe orbiting around her in her final chapter in game, like she's become the protagonist of reality itself. And now we're, we're left with Stannis, who's always been, been starved of that possibility. It's, it's hard not to get meta like that when you talk about Stannis, because essentially, His story is about being aware that you're a secondary character. To quote, to borrow a line from the show, it's about realizing that you are a page in someone else's history book and allowing that to poison your soul over time. There's this line from the the novel uh, Sir Apropos of Nothing by Peter David, which is not exactly a great book, but has has some really wonderful lines and really wonderful ideas in it. And uh, the main character at one point realizes that uh, his childhood friend is actually the perfect classic fantasy hero and all of the universe is coming together around him and that quote my life meant nothing. I meant nothing. I was a supporting player. I had a bit part. I was a walk-on, a one-off, whose presence was worth a chapter to at most, a few lines in the ballad. And that's Stannis. He desires above all to be the protagonist, and while there's definitely something grasping and pathetic about that, it's also the end result of a lifetime spent searching for love and increasingly certain he's going to be denied it. Stannis is the ultimate middle child. He is the definitive second-in-command, and he knows it, and he hates it. That's what makes him so vulnerable to Melisandre's messianic narrative about him, that you were the protagonist all along. But it also makes him vulnerable to Davos' narrative, that you can be a better king than your brother ever was. And for better or for worse, Stannis is always looking for a way to prove the world wrong about him and force everyone who laughed at him and ignored him to take him seriously. Reading his story is all about seeing whether that drive, which is a constant, will be directed for good or ill. And it depends on depends on what what day it is, depends on who we last <laughs> talked to. And it always reminds me of Jaehaerys II's line about the Targaryens. Madness and greatness are two sides of the same coin. Every time a new Targaryen is born, he said, the gods will toss the coin in the air and the world holds its breath to see how it will land. And that's what it feels like to watch Stannis' decision-making over the course of the series. And to, to understand, I think, where this, this gnawing need inside Stannis comes from, I think you have to talk about talk about his relationship with his brothers. And we'll we'll, we'll get more into that, of course, as, as we go through A Clash of Kings because it, it, it's so dominant. I think re, that's where you see George most clearly express this central theme in Stannis' character of feeling like a, a secondary character and feeling like he should be the protagonist but never will be.
0: Yeah, because Stannis is nothing but overshadowed by Robert. You know, he's he makes that very clear in this prologue that everything that he did, he did in Robert's service. He was commanded by Robert to do X. He did X. He was commanded by Robert to do Y. He did Y. He was commanded by Robert to do Z. He did Z. And what was his thanks? He gets a secondary castle. He gets a minorish house marriage to to Selise. He gets the, the the loyalty and the fealty of minor lords out in the narrow sea and their small armies that they can bring to his, his stead. This is really a central figure of Stannis' arc and that how much of an underdog he is. Not just an underdog, though. Not just an underdog, though. He's also the guy who is, as you said really well, is the second in command. He's the guy who's doing the rear guard actions and holding Storm's End while Robert goes off and gloriously wins the War, of the, the War of the Five Kings. While Robert goes off and gloriously wins Robert's Rebellion alongside of Ned Stark. He's the guy that holds Storm's End, defends it, and he doesn't get thanked for it. Ned Stark gets thanked for going there and not even fighting, not even lifting a finger besides the Tyrells dip their banners before, before Ned Stark. That's really important and it really helps set the psychological vantage point for Stannis himself. And that's just a, a really good storytelling in, in terms of how George is setting these character archetypes up and, and really has a very clear gra- grasp of the psychology of Stannis as a character. And this is a psychology that extends all the way out, not just to Stanis Baratheon
1: as the second son, but to other characters like Tyrion, for instance. For sure, there's definitely a strong echo of the Lannister dynamics to a certain extent here. We were talking in the when we did the introduction of Tywin in Game of Thrones Tyrion 7 about how for for Tywin and Tyrion, whenever they're talking to each other, Taisha and Joanna are always constantly present. They're always thinking about what the other Lannister man did to that woman, and that's why they can never connect and never get past this anger and hatred and resentment they have for each other. And similarly, you have Robert always flashing behind Stannis' eyelids. As he says in Storm of Swords, Robert, he is in my dreams as well. Laughing, drinking, boasting. Those were the things he was best at. Those in fighting. I never bested him at anything. The Lord of Light should have made Robert his champion. Why me? And it's... Again, it's the this, this sense that Robert is the actual main character of his story. That Robert is the book in which he is but a page. That Robert is the song in which he is, is... That Robert is the song in which he is but a verse. Stannis was always overshadowed by his older brother, put it all on the line for him anyway, and never got any love back for it. And this drives... Pretty much every major decision Stannis makes in the series <laughs> in one way or another. You get as late as a dance with Dragon when Robert has been dead for literal years at this point, And Stannis is still saying stuff like, we got to take a leaf out of my brother's book." not that Robert ever read one. <laughs> like he's still roasting Robert and that's because Robert was just so deep under his skin and Stannis is so haunted by it. And he's haunted by it not just because Robert didn't love him. He's haunted because Stannis believes deep down that Robert was right not to love him because he is unworthy and this is mirrored in his rejection by the political community at large it is as you warned him they will not rise maester not for him they do not love him no crescent thought nor will they ever he is strong able just i just passed the point of wisdom yet it is not enough it has never been enough
0: and and take also the example of the world of ice and fire which is again another meta meta note there where they have the whole chapter in Robert's Rebellion about the end of the dragons. And Stannis gets all of about two sentences of holding storms. And while paragraph upon paragraph is expounded upon Robert's glorious uh, combat on on the battlefield, his his glorious combative and leadership abilities. And Stannis was there holding storms during all that. But Robert was out there in Ashford fighting against the Tyrells, taking on Rhaegar Targaryen on the trident, defeating him in battle. Like, that's really... I mean, that's, that is a more that's even more meta than the character of Stannis himself because that does come from a secondary world book, history book. But, you know, that's never been enough. It's just so powerful for his, for Stannis' story that he's always been the guy who thinks that Robert is right about him. And that's – it's it's sad, right? It's, it's imbues his character with a lot of pathos that we don't see a lot in the story. Or we
1: don't see in many, many stories, I would say. I think so, too. It's it's pathos that's so good. It, it evokes like Shakespearean qualities. Our friend Lauren, a K. Shakespeare of Thrones, has talked about Stannis as, as being a, a strong Macbeth archetype, and I definitely think you see that throughout his story. And it's that line, it has never been enough, that Crescent says. That could be the defining mantra of Stannis' story in life. No matter what he does, he never seems good enough for Robert or the crown or the realm or himself. And again, it's it's the meta, he's not good enough to be the protagonist, he's not worthy of, of getting a storyline to himself, and that feeling of unworthiness has pushed Stannis in two opposing directions at once over the course of his adult life, cementing the essential ambiguity of his character. On the one hand, it's made him strong. The singers may do as they like, as he says, and the likes of Robert and Renly and Jano Slint may corrupt their souls as he climbs the ladder, but Stannis will be a just man, even if it means being the only one. He has this this independent streak, politically speaking, that makes him really appealing, the, that that Lancaster says about how he speaks the truth and speaks what he feels, and, you know, gods be damned if anyone's offended by it. And, you know, on the one hand, that's that's definitely a, a behavior common to many assholes that I think we all know, people who just are mean to people under the guise of being honest. But on the other hand, it also makes Stannis very different from the, the flattering, dissembling courtiers we've seen in King's Landing. On the other hand, though, it's made him weak. He's envious and short-sighted and very, very vulnerable to being told he's the chosen one after all, if he'll only pay the price. <laughs> and so the man resulting from this process is just past the point of wisdom, as Cressen tactfully puts it. Strong but brittle, as Donald Noy would have it, as we'll be talking about in a few episodes when we get to John 1. Or, as Loras says in season one of Game of Thrones, he's possessed of the personality of a lobster. <laughs> and Loras is not wrong about that. Like, Stannis' alienation is in part sympathetic, as we see from Crescent's perspective. That that heartbreaking line, you were the one unloved, the one who needed me most. That, that You get the sense that under all of Stannis's grumbling and and rants about how no one appreciates him enough, that what he's really talking about is love. Like he has that line about how Robert never took his hand and said, well done, brother, whatever should I have done without you? That's all Stannis wants. Like he doesn't really want the castle because he wants the castle. He doesn't really want the crown because he wants the crown. What he wanted is Robert to say, I see you. I love you. I know I wouldn't have this crown without you. And it never happened. And that really is, I think, very, very sympathetic. But Stannis' rep is also self-fulfilling at this point. You know what I mean? Like, he's so convinced that he cannot be loved that he just preemptively acts to distance himself from everyone. We see that all over his chapter, that his defense mechanisms have gone so far that he he has this duty robot persona he puts on. Like, he says in Storm of Swords that ridiculous line when Davos asks him why he wants to be king, and he says, I am king. Wants do not enter into it. <laughs> sure. Sure, yeah. buddy. You aren't driven by a deep, desperate desire to fill the hole inside that Robert left behind. You're just following the rules. Your emotions have nothing to do with it. That's that's a front. In truth, Stannis is as emotionally vulnerable as anyone in the story, if not more so. And I think George clearly wants us to peer beneath that rough surface, at the raw, hurting soul underneath. But that's not to suggest that the surface doesn't matter, or that Stannis doesn't need to be held to account for making the decision to act this way. And I think that gives you, again, the, the ambiguity of the overall takeaway from this scene, that Stannis does have better angels and is electing to ignore them. He has valid and even sympathetic reasons to feel the way he does, but he is allowing those feelings to back him into a very dark corner. Do you think that's a fair assessment?
0: That's a very fair assessment. You know, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about the character of Two-Face from The Dark Knight and from comic book series in which... Because of the unfairness and the un- and the injustice that he's experienced in the world and in his own personal life, he has fallen back on fate and on chance as the ultimate arbiter of things, of how the way things should be. I think Stannis in the same way is looking at law as that neutral arbiter in order to determine right and wrong, when in fact, like that's just the surface. That's just Stannis' defense mechanism that he's attempting to push back against the world that has already rejected him and being like, well, you already rejected me, so it's it's the law. I'm I'm the king. Once don't enter it. You know, gold is heavy on a on a crown. My I don't want the crown. I just, you know it's it's too heavy, that sort of thing. Like that kinda he makes that they, he makes all these speeches that <laughs> that really don't speak to the reality of what Stannis is feeling. Like you get a real sense from Crescent's point of view in the in the prologue, as well as Davis's later like one-on-one interactions with Stannis, that there's a real emotionality behind stannis as a character i mean you you can't go you can't read the proud wing story and not see the deep hurts that stannis is feeling about being rejected by robert and about seeing himself as quote weak wing as he as he tells davos in this first chapter in a clash of kings that being said there is a it's interesting in a, in a 99 So Spake martin george was asked about the question about whether robert ever loved stannis and Brindley, and maybe the response is interesting at least it's interesting kind of in an objective sense if not like a personal sense for Stannis, at least it helps us understand the dynamic as Robert understood. Which he says, there are many different kinds of love. Robert was dutiful towards his brothers and no doubt loved them in a way, but he didn't necessarily like them. His relations with Stannis were always prickly, Renly was the baby of the family, and spent little time in Robert's company until he was old enough to come to court. I suspect Robert was fond of the boy, but not especially close to him, which is something that we do see in a Game of Thrones a little bit. Stannis always resented being given Dragonstone while Renly got Storm's End and took that as a slight. But it's not necessarily true that Robert meant it that way. The Targaryen heir apparent had always been titled Prince of Dragonstone. By making Stannis the Lord of Dragonstone, Robert affirmed his brother's status as heir, which he was until Joff's birth a few years later. Robert could just as lawfully retain both castles for his sons and be Joffrey the Prince of Dragonstone and Tommen the Lord of Storm's End, giving them to his brothers instead was another was another instance of his great but rather gen but rather careless generosity so that's really interesting I think when you were looking at Robert and that Robert is kind of the guy who's like yeah you, you can have Dragonstone so that's where the heir is like you yeah I, I, I'm honoring you by giving you this castle without obviously saying that he's honoring stance by giving him the castle right because Robert would never say that to stance because as George says he, Robert was not especially he didn't he loved his brothers but didn't necessarily like them so he would never say that At the same time, though, like the fact that Robert never communicated these things to Stannis, as you were saying, never said thanks for holding Storm's End, thanks for taking Dragonstone, thanks for being the master of ships, really impacts who Stannis is and really (laughs) kind of influences how Stannis can perceives the gift, quote unquote, of Dragonstone.
1: Well said, sir. And yeah, George makes fair points. I think it's interesting that he says it's not necessarily true that Robert meant it that way instead of saying it's not true that Robert meant it that way, that the necessarily means he's leaving the window open and it's just, I don't know, I've always had a hard time believing that Robert really didn't see what he was doing here. Like, he's he's not obliged to follow Targaryen traditions by making his heir the Lord of Dragonstone. He just overthrew the Targaryens. <laughs> and as, as George says, Robert had plenty of options with what to do with Dragonstone and Stormsand. And if he had given them to Joffrey and Tommen, I don't think Stannis would feel quite this resentful because it's not just that he got Dragonstone, it's that... Then Renly got Storm's End, so Stannis feels not only just screwed, but screwed relative to Renly, which mm. has a huge impact on his emotions here. And for me, the overall point though is that I, I would see that I would agree that Robert doesn't view this as a slight if this was just one event in isolation, and otherwise Robert and Stannis' relationship was good. But that's not the case. It's mm. it's representative of their entire relationship, like Robert sleeping with someone in in Stannis's marriage bed, for example, or making fun of him regarding Proudwing. Stannis is not just responding to these individual instances in themselves, he's responding to what he fears is the truth behind each individual instance, and in that Robert just doesn't love him. Like, it's not just because Stannis wants to be thanked because you're supposed to thank me, I did something for you, meh. It's because, oh, he doesn't thank me, that means he doesn't care about me, my brother doesn't love me. It's, it's that thought process that is really haunting Stannis, and that neither he nor Robert ever dealt with. And we're gonna, we're gonna be talking more about Stannis' parallels to other characters a little later, but I think a really good one in this regard is how Jenna Lannister, Aunt Jenna, talks about her brothers in A Feast for Crows to Jamie. Quote, It was hard for all my brothers. That shadow Tywin cast was long and black, and each of them had to struggle to find a little son. Ticket tried to be his own man, but he could never match your father, and that just made him angrier as the years went by. Garion made japes, better to mock the game than play and lose. But Kevon saw how things stood early on, so he made himself a place by your father's side. And I think you can see a clear parallel to how the, the Baratheon generation shook out. Robert is the Tywin, right? An impossible standard that casts a long shadow over everybody. Ned was his Kevon, albeit coming from the outside, to be the brother I chose, to quote the show. Renly is the Garion, making japes, although he turns out to be more ambitious in the end than his, his fellow younger, youngest brother. And that makes Stannis the ticket. And yep, tried to be his own man, but could never match Robert, and that just made him angrier sums up Stannis perfectly. I really can't overemphasize this, that his entire self-conception and decision-making process is dominated by his reaction to Robert getting all the love and sharing none of it with him. I don't think you can properly interpret anything that happens in Stannis' story without that being the primary lens, because I think that's how George is looking at it. You can see that all over his introductory paragraph, which is just truly a work of art, especially when you think (laughs) about it in terms of cramming information about the relationship to Robert in there. I'm just going to read it again. Stannis Baratheon, Lord of Dragonstone and by the grace of the gods, rightful heir to the Iron Throne of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros, was broad of shoulder and sinewy of limb, with a tightness to his face and flesh that spoke of leather cured in the sun until it was tough as (laughs) steel. Hard was the word men used when they spoke of Stannis, and hard he was. Though he was not yet five and thirty, only a fringe of thin black hair remained on his head, circling behind his ears like the shadow of a crown. His brother, the late King Robert, had grown a beard on his final years. Maester Cresson had never seen it, but they said it was a wild thing, thick and fierce. As if in answer, Stannis kept his own whiskers cropped tight and short. As if in answer, Cresson says. It's definitely an answer. Trying to keep up with Robert won Stannis nothing, so he responded by sprinting in the opposite direction. Stannis's bookishness, his very minimalist aesthetic his general disinterest in sex coupled with a raging dislike of sex workers. That's all rooted in his own character, but the common denominator is building a counter-legend to Roberts at every turn. Of course, the brothers still have so much in common. Their their stubbornness, their martial prowess, the loyal companion who pleads with them to spare the children, you have Ned in Roberts' case and Davos in Stannis's case. Plus, you know, that whole claim Stannis is fighting so damn hard for throughout the series is in Robert's name. He's constantly fighting to declare himself Robert's true heir. He's ostensibly doing it all for Robert and Robert's memory. That's at least the official nominal political statement Stannis is making, even as he has all these unresolved feelings for Robert. So no matter how much Stannis pulls away from Robert, everything leads him right back to his famous, beloved, perfect brother whose image he could never live up to, and that only makes him angrier. He's permanently stuck in the shadow of a crown, which I just love as a quote. It's just this eerily perfect description of Stannis' relationship to Robert and the Iron Throne and the realm as a whole. Like You have Stannis' backstory and his complaints here establishing him. As like yeah, Robert's shadow. He's the unsung hero of Robert's Rebellion, the one who did the hard work and got none of the credit because everyone was focusing on the man casting the shadow. And so part of why Stannis takes to being Azora High, at least to a certain extent, is that he feels like he sweat and he starved to make Robert a figure of legend in song, so it's my turn. It's it's his <laughs> it's his turn to be one now. And so the realm's political rejection combines with his his feeling of unworthiness compared to Robert. To fuel his intense bitterness here it's all coming together so he's he's the shadow of the crown he's the shadow of a crown in that he is the flip side of Robert's glorious image like he's the bill coming due for everything Robert did he's the one who was quote standing cold in the shadows while the Sun (laughs) shone on his elder brother and now he's here for his vengeful turn in the spotlight Stannis is is the Jungian shadow of the crown stag he's this figure of intense Catholic guilt come to judge and punish us for our sins. I was saying on, on Twitter a little while back that maybe like the ultimate line that sums up Stannis' story so perfectly is how Santa describes him at the Blackwater. She's seeing people pray to the idols of the Seven and she sees even a few candles at the, at the idol of the Stranger because who is Stannis Baratheon if not the Stranger, come to judge us. Ooh, it's just <laughs> chillingly good. That is really, really good. I, you know, you know. It's a, so obviously it was, as, as I've
0: said before, I was reading through a number of future chapters to kind of get a more overall vantage point of, of who Stannis is in A Clash of Kings. What I think is so fascinating about the idea of him having the being the shadow of a crown and being the the reverse image of Robert Baratheon is how Renly is described as the ghost of the crown, right? As Catelyn sees him in Catelyn's second chapter in A Clash of Kings. Stannis is the shadow of the crown. What we're seeing here, in my opinion, is you have Renly having the identity of Robert, of explicitly drawing the connections to Robert by the imagery, by the optics. But then you have Stannis being the guy who's actually doing... What Robert would do militarily, being that excellent military mind and fighting, nearly winning in the Blackwater and winning in various against overwhelming odds in various battles going forward in the narrative. And that's really, really fascinating that we have this character being drawn from Robert as well as having Renly being drawn
1: from Robert. I think that's exactly right. And I think he ties it all together so well with that son imagery, just as we saw in Jenna's monologue about Tywin. She was talking about him casting a long shadow and all of his brothers had to find a little son of their own. Robert has a ton of Sun King imagery surrounding him in general, as we talked about somewhat in book one. His his star always shone so brightly, and that's why it's so perfect that George describes Stannis as looking like leather cured in the sun. He's been staring into the sun his whole life as it just transforms him. He's just on the other side of the glass from glory, not allowed close enough to be nourished by the fire, but close enough to be turned into steel by it. So the hotter Robert burned, the colder Stannis became. And there's something just so, like, Perfectly cosmically true about that family dynamic fitting like the Sun King imagery. It feels as though It's like you can't have a Robert without a Stannis like the action demands this equal and opposite reaction The rise is always going to foreshadow the fall Robert in his Sun King glory days embodied so many things youth and hope and the ideal of the fantasy genre and now he's gone and we're left alone with the cynicism he inculcated in Stannis the middle Baratheon stands in for, for disappointment, dis- disillusionment, decay, and despair, and the desperate drive to fill the hole that all of those leave behind. That's how Stannis related to Robert. Not exactly a healthy relationship. <laughs> and now that Robert's dead and Stannis is the heir, who steps in to take it all? Who steps in to take it all away from him? Who else but young Robert, A.K.A. Renly? There's that great quote in this chapter: "The youngest of Lord Stefan's three sons had grown into a man bold but heedless, who acted from impulse rather than calculation." In that, as in so much else, Renly was like his brother Robert, and utterly unlike Stannis. And who boy does that sum it up. We saw Renly framed throughout book one as a younger version of Bobby B. You must forgive me, Ned said, but sometimes you look the very image of your brother Robert. Or later, Ned thinking about Renly right after, as as Robert is on his deathbed. He might have been Robert's ghost as he stood there, young and dark and handsome. But now that comparison isn't just there to emphasize how Robert has gone to seed. Like, that's kind of all that meant in book one is like, look at this young, handsome, athletic version of Robert, just to emphasize how much the actual version of Robert has kind of <laughs> collapsed since he looked like that. Now it's 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 politically relevant. Like, Renly is deliberately evoking the parallel. He is Later on, he says, The Targaryens called Robert Usurper. He seemed to be able to bear the shame, so shall I. Whereas when he's kind of subtly threatening Catelyn, he swept a hand across the campfires that burned from horizon to horizon. "'Well, there is my claim, as good as Robert's ever was.'" Or this great passage when Renly is reintroduced as king when Catelyn goes to his camp. "'In their midst, watching and laughing "'with his young queen by his side, sat a ghost in a golden crown. "'Small wonder the lords gather around him "'with such fervor,' she thought. "'He's Robert come again.'" Renly was handsome as Robert had been handsome, "'long of limb and broad of shoulder, "'with the same coal-black hair, fine and straight, "'the same deep blue eyes, the same easy smile.'" So we're going to talk a lot more about this in Catalan <laughs> 2 through 4 when we focus on Renly. But what Renly is offering the realm is essentially the promise of Robert rebooted. Let's start over and try again. Remember the promise with which Robert took the throne? That didn't work out. Maybe we'll do better next time. And the the problem with that is that this the problem with that is that it doesn't reckon with why Robert failed. And Renly doesn't have an answer to that question beyond he was too focused on getting laid. Like that's all he really says when we get to <laughs> Catalan 2 when he tells Lord Caswell, I think, is the Caswell they're mm-hmm. staying with. And he, he tells Lord Caswell that, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave your daughters alone. I'm not like Robert. That's really <laughs> the only substantive difference he sets up between himself and Robert because he's so interested in claiming that image. And that dovetails with Stannis' critique of Renly in this chapter. He says, He is a child still, a thieving child, who thinks to snatch the crown off my brow. What has Renly ever done to earn a throne? He sits in council and jests with Littlefinger and attorneys. He dons his splendid suit of armor and allows himself to be knocked off his horse by a better man. That is the sum of my brother Renly, who thinks he ought to be a king. <laughs> and it also lines up with what Ned saw of Renly in council, in which he seemed unable or unwilling to rein Robert in. He was certainly happy to go along with the kill Danny plan. And his, his only strategy in terms of dealing with the dysfunction in Robert's reign amounted to swapping out the deck chairs on the Titanic by replacing Cersei with Marjorie. It's not a substantive critique. And that, of course, is in direct contrast to Stannis, who, while definitely driven to an overwhelming degree by envy and pride, actually does have a relevant policy critique to make of Robert's regime when you get to a storm of swords and he has his unhappy reunion with Janos Slint, and is describing how (laughs) Janos was hardly the first gold cloak ever to take a bribe, but he may have been the first commander to fatten his purse by selling places and promotions. And two men who were prepared to come forward died suddenly on their rounds. I saw the proof John Aaron laid before the small council. If I had been king, you would you would have lost more than your office, I promise you. But Robert shrugged away your little lapses. They all steal, I recall him saying. Better a thief we know than when we don't, the next man might be worse. So Stannis has a a substantive critique to make of Robert's regime. Not just that Robert was kind of an asshole, but Robert was being a bad leader, a bad government authority. And Stannis has this idea of how to do better when you get to a storm of swords. Rise again, Davos Seaworth. And rise as Lord of the Rainwood, Admiral of the Narrow Sea, and Hand of the King. Your grace, I cannot. I am no fit man to be a king's hand. There's no man fitter. I am low-born, an upjump smuggler. Your lords will never obey me. Then we will make new lords. <laughs> Obviously one of the best Stannis lines, but I think it's supposed to stand in contrast to It's Like you were saying, Renly got the image and Stannis got the substance. Renly got what made Robert popular and Stannis took away the critique of what made Robert not actually that good a leader once the popularity wore off. Right,
0: but the Problem for Stannis, though, is that he needs the image as well. And that as much as we're all like, like, hell yeah, Stannis, way to make Davos your your hand of the king. Like, that's awesome. That's amazing. That's great work. He still needs the imagery there to kind of back him up. You know, something I was thinking about as as I was as you were rereading that and then I was thinking about how if, if Stannis was a good and smart and pragmatic and really got the image and the optics politics the way that Renly gets it. He would have like sent out notices throughout all the Seven Kings of Westeros saying that I have named Davos Seaworth the hand of the king. I am making him I am making a statement on behalf of the small folk that if you are of good service to the realm, to the to the laws, to legality, to what is righteous in this world, then you could be risen up to be the better person, to be the person who's actually leading things. And that's really vital for Stance to do that. But he doesn't do it. And part of it is because he doesn't have the the communication skills that, that Robert has, but part of it's too that he just doesn't have the 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 idea of the optics, the image politics, everything that Stannis does that we all cheer him for. It's all done in the shadows, in the dark, on a one on one conversation with Davos Seaworth, and that or with Maester Crescent, and that's what makes him so <laughs> lacking. I hate to say it like lack because because I, I love Stannis, but it makes him so lacking in terms of that, and that's what made makes a character like Robb Stark much more. Much better at being a king because, he, yes, he has the substance, at least the military substance, but he also has the ability to make overt political statements that have an influence and impact on the people of Westeros. That's really good character building, but it's also sad for Sanson that the guy who has the substance just doesn't have the image and that makes him lacking as a king.
1: I think you really nailed it with Stannis doing his best work in the shadows, in the dark, where the the people can't see it. That's what makes him uniquely frustrating. And I think uh, well-written and and believable that he would operate that way. That this guy with his particular history and how he thinks of himself wouldn't take the attempt to make his his best moves public. We're going to see that again where he temporarily declares himself come to the wall to fight the others, but then he kind of backslides in part in the Dance with Dragons, in part because he doesn't really alert everyone about the others in the way you think he should. And it's because he is he this, this failure to master image politics. So yeah, I don't want to suggest that by Renly being all image and no substance that, that image politics is unimportant or, or, Superficial on its own. It's extremely important and a huge part of why, why Robert got the throne. And this is really one of my favorite aspects of A Clash of Kings is the presentation of Renly and Stannis as just perfectly matched opposites on every conceivable level. Like how Tyrion says about them that they're two different and yet two alike. And so that's why they (laughs) could never stand each other. It's just so perfect. Like you have Renly with his just like flower deer aesthetic and his rainbow guard and his Disney princess wife. And then you have Stannis with his his volcano covered in gargoyles looming above the realm, with his shadow falling on the capital. Like it's it's so such perfect opposites. And again, this is something we're going to be expanding upon when we get to Catelyn chapters and actually have both Stannis and Renly on the page. But even before the Baratheon bros square off, you can see you can see that a uh, perfect opposite dynamic in terms of how they relate to Robert. It's like Robert was split in two, like you split like an atom in two, and you have. Two electrons spinning in different parts like you know he was was split two like ice and now you have the ghost and the shadow and Stannis is the shadow and so he has the legit critique to make of how Robert ran things because he was right there as the shadow but he's also far too close to it emotionally to serve as a legitimate vessel for that critique. Renly, by contrast, doesn't have that personal backstory weighing him down. He doesn't have this fraught relationship with Robert because he barely related to Robert beyond the image. So that's why he's able to effortlessly recreate it. Unlike Stannis, he never had to wrestle with the man beneath the image. So the disappointment, so the disappointment and disillusionment never set in. Renly can therefore be the ghost. He can be the picture perfect resurrection of Robert with none of the baggage that Stannis accumulated and was refusing to let go in this chapter. <laughs> and it, as such, it's just so, beautifully constructed that like Renly claiming the crown and immediately amassing a huge army of followers while Stannis is left in the lurch is just such a hideously perfect nightmare scenario for him and it goes such a long way towards explaining if not excusing his obnoxious attitude in this chapter it's it's happening again Robert Robert died and he just gets a reset A mulligan, a do-over, he just gets to come back as his perfect young self like he was in Robert's Rebellion, and here I am, left holding the bag just like when he was alive. And worse, it's working. They love my charming young brother, as they once loved Robert, and as they have never loved me. This just confirms all of Stannis' deep-set anxieties, not only about Robert and Renly, that they don't love me, they don't care about duty, they're just jumping for the throne like a shiny object, What about everyone with whom he shares a continent? (laughs) Westeros has rejected him en masse, and Renly is here to make that as clear as obnoxiously possible. The whole of the realm denies it, brother. Old men deny it with their death rattle, and unborn children deny it in their mother's wombs. They deny it in Dorne, and they deny it on the wall. No one wants you for their king. Sorry. So now you have this situation where Stannis can no longer contain or contextualize his anger at Robert... With the idea that there are deeper, older laws. The younger brother bows before the older, as he said in Game of Thrones history and lore. he's, He's a stickler not because he cares about the rules in themselves, but because the rules are the only way he can understand why it's okay for the brother for whom he starved to treat him like this. It's the only way Stannis could make sense of it emotionally. Robert treats me like this because... Well, he's the older brother and the older brother sets the rules, so I just have to accept this. And that's what made him like this. That's how he got so steely and hard and brittle because he had to keep that context in mind or he would just, his heart would just break at Robert not loving him. And now, now we have a version of Robert in Renly who doesn't even have that fig leaf of the succession to justify screwing Stannis over. He's the younger brother, but he's doing it again. He's blatantly <laughs> breaking the rules and no one seems to care. There's no punishment for it. In fact, there are rewards. Everyone's happy. Everyone's joining him. So it was never about Robert being older, Stannis realizes. It was about something wrong with me. There's <laughs> something broken inside that makes me unlovable while the crowds cheer them. And so we see him decide in this chapter that he is done. Stannis is done spending his days toiling for a system and a kingdom and a family that mocks his efforts. Oh, slaying and blood magic and sorcery violate taboo, do they? So what? Why should I follow the rules when Robert and Renly never did and were loved in spite of it? He has that quote in Davos 1, They will not love me, you say? When have they ever loved me? How can I lose something I have never owned? He's explicitly talking about the small folk there, but under the surface... I think he's talking about Robert and his younger avatar Renly. They're one figure in Stannis' mind. This one infuriatingly perfect, laughing storm who will always get all the credit and all the love. And that's why Renly's betrayal is sharper than a serpent's tooth, because it feels like the the wounds of his relationship with Robert that were starting to scab over—they've all been reopened at once. And so when he, when Stannis greets Selise, broaching the topic of killing Renly, not with horror or even reluctance, but with a silence that speaks volumes. I think what's tempting Stannis there is the possibility of that image of Robert finally succumbing to gravity. Like if Renly, young Robert, could be surrounded by his army and his rainbow guard and all the lords who love him and yet prove mortal, well maybe that means Robert wasn't so larger than life after all. Maybe (laughs) I am not doomed to be his shadow forever. So I was saying Renly wants to reboot Robert's rebellion. Stannis does too, but he wants to take back that decision he made to fight for his brother, that decision for Robert over Eris, and instead fight against him. That's what we're seeing here. And we're going to argue, of course, when we get to Storm End, whether <laughs> Stannis consciously gives the order to kill Renly. But for his general character arc's purposes, I think it's clear that Stannis has identified Renly not only as a huge practical problem, like, oh, he has this giant army that I need. He's identified Renly as like the avatar of all his misfortune that he's ever suffered in his entire life. And that really is, I think, Stannis' primary motivation here, to rewrite his family history. To break the narrative that Renly is reviving and replace it with the bitter reality of his life. He wants to storm in and say, oh, you think Robert's so awesome you can just recreate him? Well, look at me. Look at what how our relationship turned out. That's what Robert was. And you see that so perfectly in his, his new sigil that, that he adopts. The one he calls mine own when he confronts Renly at Storm's End. Unlike Robert's, which Renly is using. And that sigil is the crown stag on fire. As if, as if swallowed whole by Stannis' fury. Yeah, it's swallowed
0: whole by his fury, by his backstory, by the lore as well as we'll be talking about here in a little bit. You know, I, I think you know it's it, you put it really, really well. And I think it, it's so interesting, like just coming back to this dynamic uh, of Stannis and why he's such a stickler for the rules, because I think that has been kind of subsumed by this kind of culture of Stannis's kind of, that they've accepted the face value version of Stannis as he portrays himself in the books as being just entirely focused on the rules and laws and that being the deciding influence and factor for the various decisions he makes. When I think you made it, you put it really well. It's its not that he is such a rule bound, you know, hellhound. He's the guy who has, you know, played by the rules if you want to go with that way. And he has backed Robert Baratheon and did all the shit work that he had to do for Robert. And he got nothing in return for that. Nothing. So now he's like, OK, so you have the taboo against kinslaying. Well, why you have a taboo against kinslaying? It hasn't benefited me at all. It's it. My brothers have. My brother Renly has decided that he's going to just thwart the rule of law and just put himself put a crown upon himself because he can. Why can't I send a shadow assassin after Renly Baratheon? Why? I mean, it's, it, it's he breaks the rules. I could break the rules too. I mean, I mean, there's there's a. Maybe a little bit of a category error, but that's okay. We'll we'll discuss it when we get to Davos's second chapter in *A Clash of Kings*.
1: All slippery slope arguments have their weakness. They're seductive, but you're always kind of breaking logic when you say, "Well, if this thing, then this completely different thing must also." Right. Like that's that's the logic that goes on with Stannis, but. It's in part because it's not actually just a strict legalist interpretation of the rules. It's an emotional reaction on his part. So, of course, it's not going to be entirely rational. Like, when he, I love the line when he says about the lords who are following Renly instead of him, it appears they do not like me. And he says it, like, so <laughs> mockingly, like, that's what matters. That's the decision you're basing the future of the realm on, whether, whether, whether or not you like me. But if Stannis really 100% considered that ridiculous and unimportant, he wouldn't be this mad about it. He's only this mad about it because deep down he thinks, oh yeah, yeah, none of them like me, and they're never gonna like me. And as Crescent says, it's never gonna be enough. That's where the pain and anger comes from, not just being rejected. It's it's the feeling that it's the feeling you get after a lifetime of being rejected that it's right for you to be rejected, that there's something yeah. wrong with you, and Stannis feels that so strongly.
0: It's 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 such a strong emotion for him. It's such a strong emotional reaction against the injustices that he's experienced in his own life that he's been like okay you're on un- you're being an unjust son of a bitch i'm also going to be an even worse unjust <laughs> son of a bitch you know like that's that is that's is what Stannis is, is communicating here in all of his lines to crescent and to davos later on and to catlin as well in catlin's third chapter but, but i think it's like important was we're talking about stannis and, and talking about him as like a hero and a villain i mean this chapter underscores that other aspect of stannis whether he's kind of this big old jerk or the underdog here, and, you know, surprise, surprise. It is both. I mean, let, in order to kind of, like, set this discussion up a little bit, I, I feel like it's important to take a brief gander at the political and military situation that Stannis is at at the start of the Clash of Kings to outline the picture before Emmett, you know, of course, he'll bring it home with the character side of it. You know, you know, in terms of strengths, Stannis, as he says uh, later on in the Clash of Kings, he has the largest and strongest navy the side of the Iron Fleet. As he stole the Iron Fleet and took it to Dragonstone, as has, um privateered any ships that have come with instead of dragonstone is that the word that they use is that the word the the politicians use when they
1: steal people's yeah he employed eminent domain over a variety of (laughs) ships yes right and and
0: the the funny thing too is like when we're talking about laws it's something like how like stannis like this rigid law guy consider that stannis is stealing ships before robert is even dead like he is stealing he's basically being a pirate on the narrow sea while, sta- while his brother is still the king of Westeros. I've just, I just—I mean, at this point, I just kind of kidding right now, but I think it's important just to kind of underscore that point right there. Like, oh, you're going to break the law? I'm also going to break the law and steal an entire fleet for myself. But the problem is that even though he has a great navy and that he has that going for him, his army is pathetically weak. 3,000 men, as is recounted here by Crescent, maybe 5,000 by the time that Stannis and Renly parlay in A Clash of Kings, as Renly describes it. you know, <laughs> And, of course, Renly... As you're putting it out, Renly, does this whole thing about like I'm just so likable, that's why everybody is following me. Well, it's just like, no, n- not not quite Renly, but we'll we'll get to that later in, in Catelyn's Catlin's Clash of Kings chapters. But Renly says, "quote All of the chivalry of the south, all the chivalry of the south, all of the chivalry of the south rise with me, and that is the least part of my power. My foot is coming behind a hundred thousand swords and spears and pikes, and you will destroy me with what I pray. That paltry rabble I see there huddled under the castle walls, I'll call them five thousand to be generous." codfish lords and Audionites and and sellswords you know as much as Renly is an asshole and I hate him he really does zero in on Stannis's weakness Stannis doesn't have enough men and part of the reason why Stannis doesn't have a men is his personality it doesn't lend himself to lords wanting to sign up and bring their ladies to his cause you know he's kind of a jerk but he's also kind of a jerk with a reason and a cause right as, as you were talking about with that uh, with the uh, example of Jano Slint you know, Stannis is the guy who's like, no, we're not going to have corruption in the fucking city. Watch. Like, you're out, man. Like, you would be executed if I were the king. But Robert is the guy who's like, yeah, fine. Just let him, like, be corrupt, and that's fine. That's the same sort of way that Renly is, too. You know, jesting with Littlefinger, as, Stan- as Stannis calls it here in this chapter. That's what, le- as Stannis calls it here in a later Clash of Kings chapter. Like, that's what makes Renly so popular. It's just kind of... Robert again. Robert come again. Robert just doing the same thing without examining the underpinnings to Robert's rebellion and realizing that there is an utter sickness and weakness behind Robert that makes Westeros weak in advance of the coming invasion of the others. But we'll get to that later on. But the other part of how things are going for Sansa is that he is already starting with a disadvantage. You know, Robert has named him the Lord of Dragonstone. And as we talked about in that earlier quote, is it's a little ambiguous what Robert means. But what it actually means in actuality is that he's got a shitty army because he doesn't have the same sort of lords that's, that Renly is able to call upon. You know, Renly is able to bring 20,000 Stormlanders with him to Highgarden, joins up with another 100,000 men from Highgarden in the Reach, and they're all marching under his banner, and that's because of the political situation that Robert has put Stannis and Renly in, making Renly the Lord of Storms End, making Stannis the Lord of Dragonstone. That puts Stannis at a significant disadvantage, and that makes him kind of an
1: underdog. And an asshole. Both. Both. It's always both. It's always both, and kind of the underdog is perfect. That's exactly how Stannis is being framed here, because on the one hand, he just has this really obnoxious, entitled attitude in this chapter that puts a lot of people off, and I understand why. He's, he's declaring that all of these factions are equally bad and are all usurpers and all of my enemies, and everyone has to everyone has to change except me. I'm the only person in Westeros who doesn't have <laughs> to change. And yeah, I remember Stephen Atwin, who was writing about this chapter, said, you know, we all know someone like this who is... Like, has all their grievances just hoarded into one long list that they always have ready, and those people are the <laughs> worst. And there's, there's a reason no one wants to hang out with Stannis or be his friend when this is the way he's constantly acting. But, if you, if you kinda reach past that and actually break down his arguments, they're legitimate. Like, Robert really was an absentee king who appears to have relied on Stannis to do a whole lot of the boring, dangerous, and unrewarding work of making his regime a reality. Renly really does have nothing under his belt but a couple of years on the council in which he doesn't seem to have particularly distinguished himself. And like, you know, Robert was talking in the Slint case about Stannis going too far, and... They all steal and, but Janos Slint was doing more than stealing. Stannis says, like, you know, taking a couple coppers here and there is one thing, but structurally recreating the city watch so it's one giant pyramid scheme that serves you is something entirely different. And <laughs> Jano Slint and Littlefinger were killing people, honest whistleblowers who were prepared to come forward. So that, that's clearly a case of Robert overlooking something that he should not have and his bad relationship with Stannis getting in the way of good policy. And above all, when we're talking about Stannis as a semi underdog, you know, I think most of the, the fandom objections to Stannis have to do with his fanatically harsh brand of justice that culminates with the burning of Shireen, and that is a totally correct and valid objection. Mm-hmm. I would not want to be on the docket if Stannis is the judge, Abs- <laughs> even if I'm innocent. Absolutely not. I do not want to risk that. But I think it's, it needs to be emphasized that that is not the reason most nobles in Westeros don't like Stannis, because a lot of them are just as bad in that regard, if not worse, including some people in his own camp. The reason most people in Stannis' class do not like him is because he refuses to tell them that they're awesome. And Robert was willing to do that. And Renly was willing to do that. And Stannis is not willing to do that. And he, in fact, holds all these corrupt, shiftless assholes in obvious contempt. And it's (laughs) it's kind of awesome when Stannis rips into these people. Is it politically damaging? Oh, yeah. Is it short-sighted and self-indulgent to spend all his time doing this? You bet. It's a serious (laughs) marker against Stannis as a leader. And it's one reason, I think, the guy we see in the Clash of Kings really would not be a very good king if he'd managed to win the Iron Throne. But... You cannot honestly say that the people he has contempt for don't deserve it. They really do. It's just that he is a very, very, very flawed vessel for that contempt. <laughs> because, you know, we can, I can say that, oh, Stannis doesn't really want a castle in itself. It's just a proxy for Robert's love. And yeah, that makes us sympathetic. But at the end of the day, dude, you're sitting in one large castle complaining you didn't get the other large castle. And it's like you look elsewhere in this book and it's like people who have lost everything they had or walking on the road and they're worried they're going to get attacked by random soldiers and you're sitting here complaining that you didn't get the nicer castle? Like there's something kind of petty and pathetic about that 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 cuts through, I think, even the emotional stuff. And that that is the great underlying tension of King Stannis' fury. And no, I'm not talking about the ship there. (laughs) You get where it's coming from even as you see how dangerous and counterproductive it is. So you understand Cressen's instinct to say... Oh, he's in a bad place, but he could do better. If I can save him from this person, if I can convince him about this, I can temper this flame and redirect him on a better path. And you can see George trying to assure us, the audience, like, yeah, I know this guy is unpleasant, but there are better angels of his nature buried somewhere in there. You know, I, I love
0: that line where where, where Stannis is talking about Davos in his fourth chapter in The Storm of Swords. And he's talking about the end of Robert's Rebellion, and he's talking about what he would have done if he was Robert. And he's like, I would have scoured the court clean. And you're like, hell yeah. I would have sent Jamie Lannister to the wall. I would have executed Varys the Spider. And you're like, these are all some pretty pretty awesome—I mean, already said you've been about the death penalty, personally. These are all some pretty awesome, like, policy perce- policies that, that Stannis is advocating for here. And, and you know, the other thing, too, is like— <laughs> I, I, this is something that really is—it gets emphasized the, towards the end of A Clash of Kings. But, you know, after all these stormlanders come over to Stannis' cause after Renly um, is righteously killed by, by a drone strike, uh, you, you have all these formerly traitorous lords that come to Stannis' cause. And what does Stannis do? Does he execute them all, behead every single one of them, stake them to the ground? No, he forgives them. He gives them pardons. And he talks uh, again as well about... Giving pardons to the northern lords in, in after in a storm of swords after the red weddings like I will give them out pardons and I remember how's, how's George describe it something like like the the word like kind of just like cut from his mouth or something like that like he's just like he hates to say it but you know that's that's kind of the thing we're talking about too is that like it's that substance there that he's very substantially like Robert Robert was the guy at. You know, in Robert's rebellion, who fought with guys in the stormlands and then defeated them and then brought them to his cause and feasted them and hunted with them the day after and then they would fight on his behalf. stance is the same sort of guy he just has a terrible fucking optics problem that he can never like overcome, seemingly that he does all of the same things that Robert does, but he's always viewed as the dark Lord because he just has that demeanor and that temperamental personality that just makes him just makes him unlovable to these guys who are very. Very corrupt, especially the especially the nobility and the noble class at King's Landing.
1: It's a double-edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, you can point out, as you've done before in your wonderful essay on how Stannis is more flexible than he appears, that Stannis doesn't always choose the most rigid, narrow-minded, self-serving option. Sometimes he understands he has to pardon these people to help win the throne and make political concessions. But the problem is... Once you start doing that, you have to acknowledge that you could have done it every time and you could have made some other wise concessions that could have helped you along the way. As he says to Davos after pardoning all those former lords of Renleys, Davos, look, I get if you're angry that I cut your fingers off for what was objectively a lesser crime than any of these assholes committed. And they're getting away with it scot-free and you lost your fingers. And you are right to be angry at me about that and think less of me about that because that is some <laughs> bullshit. I'm doing it because I need to, but I understand it is it is pathetic and preposterous and undercuts this reputation i'm trying to have and i think again that's where you see that the front stannis is putting up of i am king wants to not enter into it i am a duty robot is a front and it, it's it's his way of dealing with his his emotional reactions and i think you really see that through crescent's pov because all of what we're talking about is filtered through crescent's perspective on stannis as his father figure and every time Cresson looks at Stannis the man, he sees Stannis the child. Like, Stannis the child is literally swimming into his mind's eye, the, 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 the cold, sour boy left unloved. And Cresson is, is always seeing that. And this, this allows him to understand that, just like Renly, who used to be the, the laughing child with his games, Stannis' campaign is rooted in this persona he's been constructing since childhood. And the emotional heart of this chapter is certainly Cresson's love for Stannis. There's all those, those wonderfully sad lines that you were talking about in your synopsis, but, as always with Stannis, George is pushing in two opposing directions at once here. On the one hand, he's using Crescent's perspective to peel back the layers of resentment that have set in over time with Stannis to show us that lonely, unloved child, to show us someone we could sympathize with and see ourselves <laughs> in and see our, our own lonely children. You know, if you see your your kid in the playground with no friends and the pain you feel in your heart, like that's what Crescent is feeling about Stannis here. And I, I think that's in part because George understands that it, it can be difficult to emotionally connect with Stannis as he exists in the present day. And so he's using Crescent to guide us in terms of how Stannis started from a relatable spot, even if the corner he's ending up in isn't terribly relatable. Cresson understands that Stannis was starved of love and has been reacting to that absence ever since. He knows that Stannis' primary motivation isn't for the crown or castle in themselves, but as proxies for that love. Again, did he take my hand and say, Well done, brother. Whatever should I do without you? This small thing and that is all that Stannis ever wanted. And Robert ghosted him, creating a hole inside that just keeps growing and Stannis will do anything to fill. So you do see Crescent's POV being used to make Stannis more sympathetic. On the other hand, the fact that Crescent is Stannis' father figure and helped raise him and did so much for him and loves him means that Stannis is not just being obnoxious to a subordinate here. He's being cruel and arguably neglectful to the man who raised him. Like, it's, again, the substance versus style thing. Like, you can say that Stannis is actually looking after Crescent and saying, I don't want you to kill yourself in my service. You're you're too old to come climbing these stairs. I want a nice retirement. He'll say that in Davos one. He wanted Crescent to just have a few years of peace and quiet. But that's not how he's talking. That's not how he, he's not conveying that empathy and emotion. He's not nourishing Cresson's heart with something from his own heart. He's constantly interrupting Cresson. He's belittling him. He's losing his temper. It's not the model of a worthy leader and it's not the model of a dutiful son. And you have this this <laughs> other element uh, in terms of how he, he talks about Ned Stark Unlike the show, Stannis does not know in the books that Ned went down swinging for him. His letter never got out. He has no idea about that. But we do as readers. So Stannis taking out his anger with Robert on Ned is very unlikable. Like we spent so much time in Ned's chapters in book one building up to Stannis is going to save the day. Stannis is the one left. He's the true king. I'm going to put it all on the line for him. And now we get to Stannis after waiting all this time for him to come save the day. And we go, oh... He's kind of an asshole. And he's saying these things about Ned Stark. And we're like, how dare you talk about Ned Stark that way? Our <laughs> hero, our father put on the line for you. And we start thinking, oh, maybe Stannis isn't going to be this savior figure after all. Well, that's that's the that's the beauty of the point of view structure, right? In the Song of Ice and Fire, and that we have been with Ned
0: for 15 chapters in a Game of Thrones. And if we're going through this reread, we have just come off of those chapters, right? And as, as we are going through this reread. Uh, but you know, that's that's the the, the part of the non-omniscient point of view, and that status doesn't know any of this stuff. So to Stannis, like when you're looking at Ned Stark, Stannis is evaluating him entirely through the lens of what Stannis knows, right? You have that limitation of knowledge, which makes it so interesting of that dynamic of who Stannis thinks that Ned is. I mean, Ned to Stannis is yet another usurper who took what was rightfully his. And that's a really kind of sharp perspective for us as breeders because we love Ned, right? To various degrees, but I mean, mostly we we love Ned and think of him as a good guy, but Stas doesn't think that. Stannis thinks he's a, he's another thieving child just like Renly. Maybe a little bit older than Renly but of course just still thieving what was rightfully his, his Hand of the King because he did what? He held Storm's End for Robert, he took Dragonstone in Robert's name, he set the small council and did Robert come and say, thank you good brother, what would I have done without you? Now I name you Hand of the King? No instead he goes off galloping for Winterfell and his good, and his brother Ned how often did I hear of Ned Stark being called my brother when I was actually his brother? Like, I, I get it I get how like Stannis comes off, And like, and I, you I'm, I'm like you and that you and St- uh, that quote you have about from Stephen Atwell, like I remember reading that I was like, yeah, I've totally encountered people in my real life who were like, this happened and this happened, this happened, this happened, this is why I've been screwed over my entire life. And you're like, God, I need to get away from this fucking conversation, this person for like forever. But, but at the same time, status kind of has a point, right? Just, if, just even if it's a limited point of view and a limited knowledge structure, why didn't Robert name Stannis as Hand of the King? What was
1: the actual reason that he gave for not naming Stannis as Hand of the King? We, we don't know, but... And Stannis doesn't know, so it just gnaws at him. It's like, oh, I'm just not good enough. That's the only reason I can come up with. I'm just not good enough. It, is, right. it has never been enough, as Crescent says.
0: Oh, gosh, yeah. It's it's so brilliant the way that, that George does it for, for Stannis. And, like, you... you Yes, it's annoying that Stannis is listing all these grievances, but he has a point in each and every one of these grievances, and that's what makes it an interesting character as opposed to one we just want to dismiss as being like, "Oh God, here we go again." This guy coming on page again, because it makes sense. Now, when we're talking about Stannis, so we also this is where Stannis gets a little bit of contouring in that right before Salis enters in, we start to see the type of character that Stannis will become in later books, especially in, in, in Storm and Dance, where he is, you know a little more flexible than characters like Crescent and Catelyn and Donald Noy and everyone seems to think about. So it's telling that just as Stannis is considering this prudent decision that Crescent offers him, which is marry Sweet Robin or Betroth Sweet Robin to, um, to to Shireen Baratheon, his daughter, that Celise entered the story and then immediately throws Stannis off his game because he's just about to make this kind of prudent decision, although we know that it's useless because readers know that Littlefinger's already locked up Lyce's allegiance up in the veil and kept her out of the war, so to speak. And, and I think it's a good opportunity to talk about Solis as a character because a lot of people look at Solis and think that George was doing a little Phyllis Schlafly. <laughs> you guys have, know who she, she is from the era, from the early 1980s. I think she died not that long ago. And, and you know, sure, Solis isn't exactly pleasant, but but why is that? Well, could, could it be that maybe 12 to 13 years of a loveless marriage has had an impact? M- maybe Maybe, yes, absolutely. I mean, I I find myself a little more sympathetic to Celeste than most people in the fandom. And I think her conversion to become of this relorite zealot makes a lot of character sense, given the dynamic between the two in the in the marriage partnership. You know, Stannis has a very cold relationship with, with Selyse. You know, it's mentioned that he rarely wrote to her when he was in King's Landing in the small council. They have sex maybe once or twice a year. And according to Renly, Stannis, quote, goes to the marriage bed like a man marching to a battlefield with a grim look in his eyes and the determination to do his duty. And I did kind of chuckle there. I mean, Renly has his lines. He's got his lines once in a while. And part of Stannis's cold relationship to Selyse works as both contrast and comparison to Robert, who certainly loved the ladies, but, you know, that's sort of that substance aspect of Robert that you were putting in that, that Stannis possesses. You know, Robert describes his relationship to Cersei, to Ned, in Chapter seven as, quote, Oh, Cersei is lovely to look at, truly, but cold. But the other part of Stannis is that he's... You know, we should put this out of the way right now. He's a misogynist. I mean, he totally is. I mean, Asha in A Dance of Dragons thinks, but there is no explaining such things to Stannis Baratheon. Her very womanhood seemed to offend him. And this doesn't lend itself to happy relationships. Word to the wise, for those who are unmarried gents out there, misogyny never leads to happy relationships. Ever. Fuck that shit. Get rid of it in your own self. So... Imagine you're in a loveless marriage with low self-worth. You know, Crescent notes how Selyse is constantly plucking her mustache regularly, which, ouch, so she knows her appearance and knows that it's, quote, lacking. And suddenly, a red priestess comes all the way to Dragonstone with good news of great joy, which is to all people. Status is Azor High Reborn. Wouldn't you become a bit of a zealot given the circumstances? That being said, her her, her entry function in the story is kind of threefold of plot function. So getting getting beyond the character side, you know, she sets up roadblock in front of Stannis. Um, willingness stance's willingness to compromise, to seek allies to the errands. She makes quote ludicrous statements about how the storm Lord, about how the stormblowers in the reach will join with Stannis thanks to Belore. This gives Stannis the opportunity to clap back at her, but you know, she ain't exactly wrong, you know? <laughs> she ain't. I mean, when we get to when we get to Davos, the second chapter, that's we're gonna find out. And then we also get her projecting her feelings of inadequacy onto Crescent at the Feast, which is you know, it's, it's one of those moments that's kind of it's bad. I mean, let's let's just put it out there. Like Stannis and Celise do terrible things to Crescent at the feast itself, but when you get kind of dig down to Selyse's personality, it's not just that Celise is simply cruel. She's projecting her own feelings about, as you put about, as you put out last week, she's almost a mirror image of, of Melisandre, and that she's always feeling that she could become Patchface. It's, you know, Celise feels that she could be also become an object of mockery, so she projects that mockery onto a character like Cressen, who is, you know, is very sympathetic to us, old, frail, but,
1: you know, it's it, it's sad, but it's it makes character sense even if we don't agree with it. Really well said. You know, I think it's interesting that Selyse enters the story just as Lysa is being discussed because I think those two are very similar in my head. You got these elements in their backstory that make them very sympathetic but then you have their their present day actions and, my, and how they use the power they still wield over people and that's where my sympathy starts to run out. And overall, I, I think you're completely right that Selyse serves to make Stannis less sympathetic in, in two main respects. One is how poorly he treats her and women in general. And, you know, every time the subject comes up, there's always a couple people (laughs) who feel the need to object, and I'm like, I'm sorry, no, this is not like everything else in Stannis' character where there's two sides and every heroic aspect is mirrored in the villainy and vice versa. This is just wretched and hateful and can't be argued away or dismissed. Like, this is not something that's just rumored. You have multiple POVs. Think this directly about Stannis. All his behavior kind of leads in that direction. Like you were saying, comparing the Robert Cersei relationship to the Stannis-Selyse relationship. Like, I cannot imagine what a nightmare it would be to be married to Stannis Baratheon. Now, of course, there's no sign he was ever physically abusive to Selyse, the way Robert was to Cersei, but emotionally, like, there is just never a word or a look he gives her that is not just dripping with scorn and contempt. And yes, Stannis is sour and mean and grumpy to most people. But women just get this ire from him that men simply don't. And I think you can you can see that over and over again in the series. And it, sure, it's it's great that he takes rape seriously as a crime in the way that a lot of other characters in the series don't. But look at how he he reacts to the news that Gilly was, was raped and impregnated by her father. He doesn't react with sympathy and want to take care of her. He doesn't even react to neutral and go, oh, that's too bad, whatever, moving on. He reacts with horror like, ew, gross, get her out of here. I'm not going to stand for that. It's so... Off putting and inhumane and makes you realize that, oh, he's not anti rape because he has empathy for the people dealing with it. He, he is anti rape because he developed this stickler persona and it says on the rule box that rape is bad. It's, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not a moral reaction, the one we would want him to have. And I think again, that's, that's, that's rooted in his, his misogyny. So we'll get a lot of people always dispute that, but I really don't think it's debatable and I don't think George means it to be debatable. Do, do you
0: think, this is just totally off the wall, do you think that Stannis's opposition to rape comes from his knowledge of, of Robert's relationship with Cersei?
1: It's the most generous possible interpretation. You could also say that about his his hatred of sex workers, that it's just an overreaction to Robert's, you know, love for them. But, uh, it's, it's maybe, it's, it's kind of a weak fig leaf. Again, it's not like Robert personally treated women well, so Stannis is just kind of imitating him in that regard. So I think, I think you can, you can make a case for it still being rooted in his character, but again, it's, it's the one aspect of Stannis' character I feel like doesn't have a flip side, like there's not a way in which his misogyny is good. Like, right. there's a way his, his fanatical is, his harsh brand of justice has good and bad aspects to it. The way he conducts himself in, in military terms has good and bad aspects to it. This is just bad. That's what I'm saying. Like, this is the one non-mirrored aspect of Stannis' character, so to speak. But the other respect in which Selyse serves to make Stannis less sympathetic is in her advice, which he often takes. And there are few characters in the story, I think, who do worse with power than Selyse Baratheon, nay, <laughs> Florent. Because it's it's always rooted in the most narrow minded and self surfing interpretation of her will imaginable. Like Melisandre is is reasonable and rational compared to Selyse in terms of how they generally conduct themselves. Obviously, Melisandre enables Selyse all the time, but if you just take them in isolation, Melisandre is is, is the much more relatable and humane character, I think. Mm-hmm. And and you see that in this introductory scene. In introductory scene in which yes, yeah, Stannis almost almost takes Cressen's advice. Like for one second, his brow unfurrows. And George shows us the glimpse of the reasonable man and worthy leader who's in there somewhere under these calcified layers of loneliness and resentment. (laughs) And then Selyse walks in and hits him where she knows it's going to hurt. Must the rightful lord of the Seven Kingdoms beg for help from widow woman and usurpers? Because like Tywin and Viserys and Theon and Victarion... Stannis is motivated in large part by the sense that the world mocks him and that this must be stopped. As he's going to say in Davos 1, there will be no more begging and no more laughing either. Oh boy, does that sound like Viserys and how he thought about, like, the Golden Company and how Danny thinks about him thinking about the Golden Company. And of course, this is rooted for Stannis in how Robert and Renly treated him. They were the ones who laughed at him the most, and we see that reinforced at Storm's End when Renly starts mocking Stannis to his face, and Stannis absolutely cannot deal with it anymore. Like, the the Stormlords who refused Davos, the Northmen and the Riverlords following Robb Stark, the Lannisters occupying the throne in the capital, all of them are the icing, in Stannis' view. Robert and Renly are the cake. You know what I mean? Like, he filters his relationship to everyone else through his relationship to them, and his relationship to them never, ever worked. So when he says, I make common cause with no one, they are all usurpers, and they are all my enemies, that's in part an expression of a sincere political belief, but more than anything, what he's really saying is, my big brother never loved me and I don't know how to deal with that. So I'm going to go to war about the fact that I don't know how to deal with that. Which is extremely immature. <laughs> but it's also relatable and I think it fits this larger-than-life tragic structure wherein the earth will shake to fill these individuals' holes inside. And Crescent is trying to rekindle the dying flame of the worth following and Selice is feeding him a different narrative. You can take a shortcut. You can force them to get in line. You can finally force the world to make sense. And this is just... Such an iconic and well-tread dramatic scenario. As as you were describing it, the man who built his life on doing the right thing in the face of the thin wages that comes from doing the right thing chooses the wrong thing. And that is a significant failure because if there's one consistent message in *The Song of Ice and Fire, it's do the right thing even when there's no guarantee of success, especially when there's no guarantee of success. No chance and no choice, right? And that's something that Stannis is kind of giving up here. He's saying if there is no chance, then you have to make a different choice. It's not good enough to make a choice if there's no chance. And so by chapters in, when Stannis has fully bought into Selyse's pitch, George demonstrates that in doing so, he has sold his soul. There's that extremely unsympathetic moment when Stannis goes along with Selyse's order for Crescent to wear Patchface's fool's helm. And Crescent thinks, no, this is not you. This is not like how you are. You were yeah. hard, hard, but never cruel. And now Stannis is crossing the line. Now, as you said, he quickly takes it back like he's you know when Selyse is ordering Crescent to sing his counsel Stannis goes no that's an insult you can't do that to this guy that again George is letting us know that the man who saved Proudwing is still in there but he's also letting us know that that man has bent the knee to the man who cast his love for Proudwing into the fire in order to keep up with Robert that's what's in the driver's seat now for Stannis so when George says that Stannis is in spite of everything a righteous man I think it's fair to say that how he treats Crescent here is part of the everything he's talking about wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, right, exactly. Like, George is talking about how Stannis is righteous in spite of everything. And that's really interesting, right? In spite of everything is such good wording, right? Because it really kind of shows us who Stannis is, it, you know, underneath all of the layers of the, the the justice robot, underneath of the pretending to be this guy who doesn't care about the crown, who is emotionless, who is able to withstand these terrible, horrible things going on around him in his life personally, professionally. He's still the guy that, you know, he's, he's righteous. He's a good guy deep down underneath of all of that shit that he's doing and he will be doing in A Clash of Kings. And that's, you know, I you can imagine like a different scenario, right, where Robert cherished and valued his brother, used him, but also thanked him, brought him up and lifted him up in the same way that, you know, Ned Stark did in bringing people to his table to feast and to have a good relationship with his people. I mean, like, you know, take the relationship between Ned and Benjen. Like, even though they're apart for most of their their lives, right, with Benjen at the Wall and Ned at Winterfell, when they get together at the Winterfell Feast at the start of the Game of Thrones, they're they're pretty, they, they seem pretty pretty cool with each other and, they're, like, they're happy to see each other. You know, I, I, I often wonder about Stannis, about whether, you know, he, he talks later in A Clash of Kings about going to his grave thinking about Renly's peach. I also wonder whether Stannis will go to his grave Wondering if Robert ever really loved him, like I think that's that gaping hole that you talked about so well. That's really animating so much of what of who Stannis is, and yes, it makes him really sympathetic in some ways, but it makes him really unsympathetic in other really important ways. And I think we can kind of evaluate Stannis too in terms of in terms of how he's a character archetype, but also how he works as a comparative narrative character, uh, how he works as a comparative character to others in the series, because Stannis is nothing but seen throughout the series, not just in the five main books, but also in the backstory, the novellas, histories, interviews,
1: the ones that are saying, yeah, all of that stuff. <laughs> it, it's this great, perfect, I don't know if it's irony or not, that Stannis always thinks of himself as a page in someone else's history book, a character in someone else's story, but he is the primary articulation of an archetype in which the author was clearly fascinated and keeps coming back to over and over. As As you said wonderfully, you can see Stannis everywhere in the story. Like, he has so many parallels with Tyrion, like this, this, this second son who kind of feels underloved and under-focused on, and he's going to show show everyone who laughed at him that he's worthy of attention, even if it takes him to some dark places. You've got Theon in this book, who also has that feeling of forever being the underdog and caught between identities and it, it, it kills children to escape that conundrum. You have uh, Mikar Targaryen in the backstory, one of the Targaryen king's father to uh, Egg, Egg on the Fifth. We've seen him, bits and pieces of him in the Duncan Egg stories, and in personality and temperament, he is a dead ringer for Stannis, and he also uh, committed kinsling. Maybe killed Baylor <laughs> Breakspear. Was it on purpose? He says it wasn't. Was it really? It's, it's 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 somewhat ambiguous. Maybe even he doesn't know. You have Alaric Stark, who we met more in uh, in Fire and Blood. This one Stark Lord who treated with Queen Alicent Targaryen. And again, in terms of his overall temperament and how he's described, he's very much a dead ringer for Stannis. Like very off putting at first, but once you get to know him, there's a more complex, interesting man under that that rough surface. The way Stannis is introduced here is very, very similar to how Balin Greyjoy is introduced later on in this book, sitting on his own Grim Island on the other side of the continent, ruminating about his own past war and everyone who's done him wrong and how he's going to show all of them. Very, very similar setup. I think uh, Balin Greyjoy, of course, ends up not progressing on that as a character. And Stannis, uh, George takes him a different place. Again, Stannis is the primary, artic- primary articulation of this archetype, but a lot in common with Balin. Not the only Greyjoy. You've already talked about Theon and Balin, but Stannis already also has a lot in common with Victorian Greyjoy. Stannis is, of course, a non-point of view character, but I think if he was a POV, you'd basically have Victorian on your hands. Victorian <laughs> has this kind of sour middle child who feels forever mocked and misunderstood by the more popular members of the family, and he's, he's, he always does his duty, and he's got the ships, and he hooks up with the Red Priest. So again, very, very similar to Stannis. And then there's the parallel that, um, Stannis fans really don't enjoy talking about, and that's the (laughs) parallel to the Mad King, Eris II, Mm. because if Stannis is kind of rebooting Robert's Rebellion to fight against Robert this time with Renly playing the Robert role, well, that puts Stannis on Eris's side, and there are certain things in common. Of course, they burn people alive, specifically one of their hands. Uh, Eris burns Carlton Chelsted alive when he defies him. Stannis burns Alistair Florent alive when he defies him. And yet, you have a, we're gonna talk a little more about Melisandre as the Varus figure, the analogous Varus figure to it. Uh, the spider wasn't Eris's reign, so Melisandre is in Stannis's reign. And, you know, that does not suggest that, aha, that's the Rosetta Stone that solved Stannis's character. He's the mad king. We're done. <laughs> um, but suggests that part of what George is saying is, isn't it interesting? that a character who I can describe as righteous can also reflect aspects of the Mad King. Isn't it interesting that he can be more than Bagelin and Victarian, more depthful, more complex, but still have those nagging things in common with those obvious assholes? Isn't that interesting? And I think that's all part of the complexity of Stannis's character.
0: Right. And also you have the the love of fire, right? You have the fire imagery that's going on between Aerys and Stannis. You've got Victarian being the great sea captain and Stannis being the same sea captain too, You've got, you know, so many wonderful aspects of these guys that are and, and gals that are in the story, but I think most importantly when we're talking because we did talk about we did start this conversation about Stannis Baratheon and talking about his him as an archetype for the main characters in the series. I think the two most important characters that Stannis is acting in relation to are Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen.
1: It's wonderful that Stannis thinks he's been the secondary character to Robert his whole life when in fact he's the s- a secondary supporting character to John and Danny. He, <laughs> he was right about being a secondary character. He just didn't realize who the protagonist actually was. And yes, the comparisons between Stannis and John and between Stannis and Danny are so hugely central to his character to the extent that I would argue as I have before that this is why Stannis exists at all is to work out complications and themes for those two main characters so George can arrive at the finished form later on. I and mean, I think we did see a version of that with Danny, especially in the show. Melisandre explicitly compares Jon and Stannis in A Dance with Dragons. In truth, the young lord commander and her king had more in common than either one would ever be willing to admit. <laughs> Stannis had been a younger son, living in the shadow of his elder brother, just as Jon Snow, bastard born, had always been eclipsed by his true-born sibling, the fallen hero men had called the young wolf. Both men were unbelievers by nature, mistrustful, suspicious. The only gods they truly worshipped were honor and duty. So that's George doing some meta on his own, just pointing out for the audience, hey, in case you haven't noticed these parallels that I'm setting up, (laughs) here you go. And we'll have a lot more to say on the subject of Stannis and Jon as we go. It's probably my favorite relationship in the series, and we'll get to that more in Storm and Dance. But what's important to note here is that... The decision we saw John make at the end of book one in his final Game of Thrones chapter is the exact opposite of the decision Stannis made during Robert's Rebellion. Stannis describes that decision to Davos, the Storm of Swords. I chose Robert over Eris, did I not? When that hard day came I chose blood over honor and John did the opposite he chose honor over blood you could say he chose the Night's Watch over riding off to join Rob and avenge Ned. So I see Stannis in part as a version of John, who actually did abandon his watch to join Rob. He actually did choose blood over honor, and he came to regret it. Hmm. Robert disappointed Stannis on every level, both in their relationship and in Robert's conduct and in Robert's conduct as king, and that, of course, as we've been saying, contributed hugely to Stannis' current political and emotional state. So he is John. Spat back out decades later after joining up with Rob after Rob has left Jon to hold some castle and forgotten all about him. Which of course Rob, the actual character Rob Stark, could probably never actually do that. <laughs> the Starks certainly have more functional family dynamics than the Baratheons. But the point is, is that Stannis is George giving you. A look at what happens if John gave free rein to his resentment. You were comparing Stannis' emo ramblings to John's, but of course John is a teenager. Stannis is a grown man who has just right. indulged in this for years. So this is if John never did anything but that. If he, if he buried his higher ideals and higher calling and just focused on no one loved me as much as Rob. And as for Danny, she was born on Dragonstone, and Stannis was the lord of Dragonstone. She is a younger sibling taking over from the elder slain in book one, just as Stannis is. And she walks that same prophetic fine line as Stannis, where it's like, okay, is this the protagonist or is this the antagonist? Which which is being set up here? And she is this profoundly ambiguous figure, just like Stannis is. She has certain actions and ideals that set her above her environment. There are certain things Danny does that makes you go, oh, wow, she's so much better than the rest of her class, and so does Stannis. Hmm. But in both cases, you have these worrying signs about what the end game is, about where all these, these ideals and ideas are headed. And she comes for King's Landing with Fire and Blood in season eight, and probably will in the books, just like Stannis did at the end of book two and season two. And in both cases, with Stannis and Danny, you have this this brief apotheosis, this moment of clarity where it's like, oh, the, the real threat is to the north. That's how I save the world. That's how I'm the hero. That's my destined role in this narrative. <laughs> save the world from the others. And in both cases. If if season eight is indeed the structure for Danny, which yeah you mentioned before, may not be the case, but let's assume for the moment it is. If you have that structure, that brief apotheosis just isn't enough to sate them. Realizing that that they found the right thing to do isn't enough. Like Adam Feldman says about Danny and Dance, that she created peace but found that war tasted better to her. Mm. And so Stannis embodies. What's waiting for every bright young revolutionary in the story? He is what's waiting for them at the end of the road. John, Danny, Rob, Robert, Renly—all of them dead end in that image of a skin turned steel by the sun. Like this is, this is what happens when you're Icarus and you fly too close. Stannis is what's is what's left over at the end of that process.
0: That's a fantastic point. I think that's absolutely true. You know, you know something that's kind of struck me too about Stannis is when he's talking about Rob's rebellion and Storm, he never sets down to davos something to the effect of well Eris the second was the mad king and he committed this vast horrible injustice it's always in the the guise of well robert was the elder brother and i have to follow him and i chose blood over honor it's it's so interesting that he that's the dynamic that he is setting himself on that he is choosing his his family over 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 the king over his honor where what do you look at Robert's Rebellion it wasn't the case that it was he was choosing that that wasn't actually what the, what the rebellion was based on the rebellion was based on actual just cause which I think is so fascinating that Stannis never gloms onto that as being the quote unquote justice robot I think it's another like kind of like chick in that armor of being like well
1: not really that's a brilliant point it's, it's that telling absence that you can infer that okay so maybe Stannis wasn't all that disturbed by what Eris did or maybe not as disturbed as someone like you know Jamie for example, I and mean, obviously Jimmy had to actually witness it, but the fact that Stannis never brings that up is very telling because then maybe that wasn't his cause. In the same way, when you get to a Storm of Swords and he's considering burning Edric's storm and then Davos sends Edric off and tells Stannis about the, the problems at the wall and Stannis goes north, Davos kind of took the decision out of Stannis's hands so Stannis never says the words, I was wrong to consider having my nephew burned, I have learned right. my lesson, I will not go down that path again, that heiress path, so to speak. Remains preserved, and obviously, Stannis is not an outright sadist like Eris. <laughs> when Davos tells Edric that Stannis was angry when he cut off his fingers, he tells himself, "No, I'm lying. Stannis was not angry." But the if if the end end point is result, you have to take that parallel into account. And of course, as I was saying, part of the Stannis Eris comparison has to do with with Melisandre, as this is figure of, of of fire and portentous doom that that Crescent was talking about, and even more than Stannis, I think. Like the prologue builds up to the introduction of Melisandre. She's like this constant mm-hmm. presence throughout the chapter. She's bleeding into the comet and the castle and Crescent's dreams. It's like she's reddening the world with every step she takes. It's it's, it's so interesting to come come at this. I'm curious, how, how did it feel like coming to Melisandre after reading those last few Danny chapters and her kind of ascendance into this terrible, wonderful figure of fire and femininity and godhood? Because Melisandre feels like kind of a parallel to that in certain respects but not in others you know what i mean it, it's it's
0: interesting because I, I think george is setting her up to be a parallel to danny here right you're supposed to like draw on our minds like the subconscious idea of like okay so we have another female prophetic figure of destiny who's uttering these things and is bring and it's so, out of some sort of power right as we see at the end of the chapter but at the same time there's a little bit of Differences there, there are differences there that become more and more apparent when you're reading through the, the prologue and you're getting more and more of Melisander's personality here. I, I think, you know, she's talked about as red and terrible and red, as Cresson describes it. That's really interesting because uh, I, I, this is a, this might be a terrible uh, analogy, but <laughs> I kind of look at Crescent's point of view is the same way that some of the, the, the Dothraki who were watching Danny walk into the fire maybe looked at Danny, but because we don't have their perspective of that action, we don't get that idea of who Danny is being what how Danny is being perceived until we get much, much later in the narrative when you have other point of view characters that are intersecting with Daenerys Targaryen. That's really interesting. I I think it's um it it could have been it could have just been like simply like, okay, so we have another Profit in the story, great, fine. But instead, George does something interesting. As we talked about before, he sets her up ambiguously, but he also sets her up as this kind of character who's not quite as omniscient and powerful as she seems, yet somewhat omniscient as well as somewhat powerful. And I think that's a very interesting contrast and comparison to Daenerys Targaryen.
1: Is that what is that your perspective too? For sure, it's that that same balance, and you do see that with Danny. But Melisandre feels. She feels like she's teetering more wildly on the edge, more perilously than Danny is at this point in her story. Like, again, Danny Mm -hmm. felt like she was snapping everything together at the end of a game with Ruins. And Melisandre, even before you know the truth about her, you feel like, uh, things are a little more out of control here. Things are a little looser (laughs) and more ambiguous. And that, that's, that, that, that good feeling is gone. That sense of awe and power you got at the end of book one. It's it's not quite there with Melisandre, even as you can sense she's trying to create it. And that she's trying to create that style, the trappings of power when she describes them. And it it works in terms of like the overwhelming vivid imagery that she brings brings along with her. Like when Crescent descends into the dragon's mouth of the Great Hall to confront her at chapter's end, it's like it's like she brought the, the hellish aesthetic of a shy with her. Like she's turning hmm. everywhere Melisandre goes, she turns into a shy by her very presence. Like she's 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 made of candle smoke and dissonant drones, blood velvet and scarlet satin as she wears in Davos 1. She's all fluid flowing flourishes in just perfect contrast to Stannis' stiff martial stomp. (laughs) <laughs> and before the chapter begins, she's already got her hooks in Selyse and is establishing a network of informers and enforcers on Dragonstone that we will see in Full Flower in the Storm of Swords. And the ripple effects that will claim the gods in Davos 1 are seen here as well. Already Melisandre is spreading rumors and whispers. Dala and Matrice were talking by the well, and Dalla said she heard the Red Woman tell Mother that it was Dragon's Breath. So it's not just that Melisandre is talking to Selyse, it's that other people are hearing her talk to Selyse, and, and these, these rumors and these ideas are starting to spread. Yeah, this is George showing us, I think, the early days of someone like Varus or Bloodraven. We only see Varus in A Game of Thrones. We only see Bloodraven in The Mystery Knight after they have long established their power and their reputation as Masters of Whispers. So this is the equivalent of seeing Varus crossing the Narrow Sea for the first time, worming his way into Eris' good graces, weaving his spider web in King's Landing. And it's interesting, I think, that you know, given that Barriston, according to Stannis said that the rot in Eris' reign began with Varus. I think you could see Crescent's prologue as like an, an early Barriston chapter. Like it was comparing <laughs> Crescent to Barristan in terms of their age and how that that infu- in, uh, that infuses their characters with Pathos last week. And Davos is also the Barristan equivalent here because you could say his siege breaking at Storm's End stands in for the defiance of Duskendale with Stannis as the Eris figure being rescued. But I think it's interesting that uh, Crescent's thoughts and feelings on Melisandre here, I bet they're very similar to the thoughts and feelings Barristan had when Varus first showed up in Eris' court. Who is this weird foreigner (laughs) that's so off-putting in terms of how they look and they seem nice, but I can tell they're not, and they're ruining the king's mind. Like this is I'm sure this is exactly how it went in Varus' early days. And just as with Varus, George, on the one hand, gives us good reason to adopt our POV's fear and distrust of Melisandre. Like when Ned is freaked out by Varus in Book 1, George gives us good reason to be freaked out by him too. But in both cases, with Varus and Melisandre, George also encourages us to dig deeper and find their true motives, and their true motives end up being very complex and at least somewhat relatable, if also terrifying. So you have George leaning into describing Melisandre as the way Crescent sees her, this figure of uneasy, ominous horror, like the comet embodying the tone of dread that defines this chapter as a whole. Like the way her ruby just throbs, from, from where she's wearing it around her neck, the way her, her hair and eyes are this, not just red, but this Crescent says, this really unnatural color of red that no one else he's ever seen has. He's emphasizing that, well, yeah, Melisandre is very pretty and shapely and whatnot. She also looks like blood and fire and just the gates of hell. And Crescent feels like he's the only one seeing through the glamour in multiple senses of the word. But on the other hand, you can see George working to show that Cressen is not seeing Melisandre entirely accurately, and that she is more than just a mustache-twirling villain for the good guys in Stanis' story to deal with. Crescent assumes, very tellingly, that it's a knight helping to his feet when Patchface knocks him over, but instead it's Melisandre, so she's introduced giving aid rather than dealing death or making terrible prophecies. She's introduced helping an old man who fell. And in, <laughs> in, indeed, she's going to agree with Crescent's uh, framing of her as a knight. That's how she describes herself in Davos 2 at Storm's End. And that further b- kind of blurs the roles and archetypes at work. What is she? Is she a stereotypical witch or is, is she a knight in stereotypical witch clothing? And uh, Melisandre is also, as we're going to see much more in Storm of Swords, she is more interested in genuine debate, even from a position of power and authority and punishment, than pure, zealous mantra-mouthing. Because that tends to be more Selyse's willhouse. Like, Melisandre is genuinely interested in what Davos has to say when you get to a Storm mm-hmm. of Swords, and they're debating Relore and Stannis. She's not just silencing him the way the Florence do. She's curious, and she sees she sees Crescent the same way he sees her. They both see each other as, like, these larger-than-life figures who are embodying schools of thought, and this is a showdown between the secular mm-hmm. and the supernatural. It's not just Crescent who thinks that way. You really get the sense Melisandre does, too. That she is treating this as, as a contest for the mastery of will and the mastery of Stannis' soul. It's 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 that classic we're not so different, you and I, Spider-Man dynamic hmm. that George recreates between Davos and Melisandre in A Storm of Swords. It's it's key to making the latter work that she doesn't actually hate these people. That she's interested in them and she has these complex relationships. So she's Rasputin. But more. She's a Disney witch, but she's more. She's always more, just like Stannis, because above all, Melisandre is a figure of ambiguity and philosophical complexity. She's a punisher, and she's a savior. She represents death, and she represents rebirth, and it's all wrapped up in this carefully sculpted image. And Crescent senses this shadow play. He senses that things are not quite what they appear, but he can't pierce it to see what lies beyond. He can't actually get to the truth, so he falls back on that line. You quoted red and terrible and red. Which is so revealing because it captures the dread Melisandra inspires, that she's just like this force, that this uneasy force in the room. But it also captures how Cresson is abandoning his cherished rationality when it comes to defining that dread. Like, he says red and terrible and red because he can't come up <laughs> with a third thing to say because he can't define why Melisandre freaks him out like this. All he can do is describe her color, how she puts him off. Melisandra, like Stannis and Davos, as I said last week, is putting up a front. But teasing out what's part of the front and what's real is the reader's job. And if it's a difficult one, well, imagine how it is for her trying to divine the real from the fake and the flames. We're kind of undergoing—maybe this is too pretentious— but I, th- I feel like we're undergoing the same process with Melisandra as a character that she undergoes with the flames. We are trying to interpret these, these difficult, contradictory messages just like she is. Does, does that work? It does. And it works really well because—
0: She's presenting an image, right? It, it she is in very much she's very much in imbibing this sense of the real and the magical on one hand, but she's also, also like a magician, like an actual yes. like magician, yes. right? She she is pulling bunnies out of hats, so to speak. Like she's making Stannis' sword go up in flames <laughs> in, in Davis' first chapter, but she's also reading the flames too. She's showing these projections of divine on one hand she's seeing the divine she's seeing something magical at work and she's also being like, well, I need to like convince people that that I'm, what I'm actually seeing is divine. So let me allow this illusion, let me create this illusion so that people know that, that what I'm doing is real, which is so really interesting, right? Using fakery to prove a real point. Like that's 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 pretty unique in fiction, I think. I think we but yeah, but no, it's 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 the magical on one hand, it's the illusion. But these things are both acting in the same proximity in one character. Like Melisunder is definitely trying to find out who she is, much as we as readers are trying to find out who she is. And she's willing to use fakery and magic and illusions to prove the real. That's interesting, right? And what better way to prove the
1: real than to drink some poison? Why not? Exactly. You have that, that wonderful duality that you were talking about where Melisandre is both the real deal and a charlatan at the same time, depending on what she needs to do to advance her agenda. And that, that two-fisted approach is often how George writes magic, where Heron Hall is both a white elephant whose political history explains all the horrible things that have happened to it and pretty clearly, I think, a cursed castle because certain aspects <laughs> of it go beyond the logical and the rational. Or you see that at the Night Fort where Brand tells all these stories about all the ghosts in the Night Fort and you think, Oh, spooky haunted. And then he hears this noise in the well and turns out just to be Samuel Tarley. And you think, Okay, so no actual ghosts. George is kind of debunking that and showing it so you can explain everything that's happening here. And then Sam takes Bran and his companions down to this weird ass Weirwood gate that speaks and opens up into a giant <laughs> mouth and cries on Bran's head and you're like, oh, okay, so the stories are legit. So it's both. And I think that 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 balancing act is crucial to the series being as good as it is and being especially good at handling magic, which I've always said I think is one of George's strongest features in the series. But as you say, it all comes together. Crescent and Melisandre are staring each other down just like Cresson was staring the comet down. These these forces of the secular and the sorceress coming together to battle for the soul of the king. It's so great, and it's so misunderstood. <laughs> like Davos will repeatedly claim later on, both out loud and in the privacy of his own thoughts, that Melisandre murdered Crescent. And he does not appear to realize that this is ridiculous. Look, I love Davos as much as anybody does, <laughs> but this accusation does not bear up to the slightest scrutiny. Crescent is the one attempting to commit murder he conceived the act he brought the murder weapon he deployed it Melisandre is responsible for nothing more than failing to go out of her way to prevent his suicide like you could say mm. she should have thrown the cup to the ground and saved his life I find it hard to hold her responsible for that given that she, he's trying to kill her and look It is relatable and sympathetic that Cresson would resort to drastic measures specifically to prevent one of his surrogate sons from killing another, especially given Robert's recent death and the taboo against Kinslang. I I really do get that emotionally. Like, this is not Cresson being a horrible, sadistic person who likes to kill. But I think it's really important to know that Stannis' rage towards Renly is already in the driver's seat before Selise walks in before Selyse talks at Melisandre's vision of the youngest Baratheon brother dead. Melisandre herself isn't even present in that scene when Stannis is convinced to take this course of action. Now, she is certainly tempting him onward, sexually as well as morally, but the decision is ultimately his and is firmly rooted in his character. At, at this point, as Stannis says in Davos 1, he thinks of Melisandre as nothing more than a, quote, red hawk. He thinks of her in terms of <laughs> her military utility and her utility in terms of frightening people. He doesn't believe in her god or her prophecies, not yet. So I think we, I think it's important to consider Crescent and Davos' perspective on Stannis and Melisandre through the lens of both feudal politics and genre tropes rather than just adopting their perspective uncritically. It was commonplace in ye old medieval times, and I'm, you know, glossing over a lot of history here, but Mm -hmm. it was commonplace for not only troubled supporters, but outright revolutionaries to direct their criticisms and violent action, not toward the sacred body of the king himself, but toward evil counselors who were ostensibly responsible for all the misdeeds. It's not the untouchable king as god and land (laughs) who's screwing everything up, it's his vizier. And if we get him out of the way, then everything will, will, you know, come back to normal. And that's not to say that evil counselors weren't a thing, of course, but that the culture of loyalty to the monarch invariably has an impact on resistance to injustice flowing from the top down. It's going to have an impact on how you conceive of it and what you do about it. And we know that George was aware of and interested in this aspect of feudal politics when writing A Clash of Kings because he makes explicit reference to it later in the book regarding Tyrion's reputation. His grace is but a boy in the streets. It is said that he has evil counselors (laughs) and because of this ideological limitation as well as his of course his personal attachment to Stannis I think Crescent is unable to acknowledge to himself that Stannis not Melisandre is still the one setting the agenda and making policy on Dragonstone remember Crescent has no idea that Melisandre can birth shadow baby assassins as far as he knows the priestess along with the queen is simply talking the king into going for Renly's throat (laughs) When he when he thinks to himself, uh, the woman was the problem. No, not the queen, the other one. I think that's such a revealing move on George's part because you could say, hey, Cressen, why aren't you trying to kill celice She's the one arguing for Stannis to go down this road directly. She's the one talking about Renly being dead. She's pretty clearly a terrible influence on Stannis. And she hates your ass. Why aren't you trying to kill her? And it's because, well, Selyse is the queen. Celise is the lady wife of my lord Stannis Baratheon. I can't possibly go up against her. But Melisandra, the outsider, the weirdo foreigner with her strange religion, she's a politically and culturally acceptable target for my outrage, even though really a huge chunk of my outrage belongs with Stannis and Selyse. Crescent is projecting mm-hmm. to a certain extent, I think.
0: He absolutely is projecting all of the wrongdoing on Melisandre. That's why she's so misunderstood, is that she's really only giving Stannis an identity more than anything else, as this is Zora high figure. And yes, that is becomes a, a stronger part of Stannis' identity going forward. But here, like all of the bad things that Stannis is considering and eventually does, or maybe doesn't do, we'll talk about that later on, it's all done because that's what Stannis wants. Melisandra is an instrument, a blunt object that Stannis can use to you know, clear away Renly Baratheon so that he can gain the swords of, of, of Storm's End and some from Highgarden as well, and is. Quest to take the Iron Throne. That's that's really an interesting perspective, right? When we are coming back to this chapter, because I think like a lot of people just take Crescent at face value. That Melisandre is the baddie in the Stannis's court. Melisandre is the person who is inflicting Stannis with this ideology that is twisting his mind. But the reality is that she's not really twisting his mind. Yes, yeah, she is supporting some of the actions that he's doing here, but she's only a support. She's only in the supporting role. The person in the driver's seat is Stannis Baratheon. Stannis wants Renly dead. Stannis is willing to break laws and break all these all sorts of societal norms in order to get what is, quote, rightfully his, what it is rightful is without the quotation marks. Melisandre's just the guy, there's just the gal who's supporting him along the way and doing the things that Stannis maybe can't outwardly state that he wants to do. Even I mean, because I, I think it's interesting that, you know, when Celise brings up killing Renly, that Stannis sits there quietly and just kind of stares, right? But you can almost see the wheels turning in Stannis' mind. Yes, this is probably something that we should do. This is something I need to consider. It's not... And he and he will be the one at, at some level, at some level, to order the assassination of Renly Baratheon. And that's interesting. And it kind of... It paints Stannis in a really kind of negative light, ultimately, I think, when we're looking at him. And Melisandre in a much more positive light, which I think is what George is going for, especially as especially giving Melisandre a point of view Comma Dance with Dragons.
1: Absolutely, Stannis has, has more agency than, than Creston is willing to admit. And that, that brings me to the, the genre trope I was talking about, namely the ensorcelled king. This is a, a common trope in, in fantasy. You picture like Theoden in the movie adaptation of The Two Towers, in which the, the wizard Saruman is literally speaking through him. You have the, the seemingly decrepit, enfeebled ruler of Rohan, but when Gandalf the White banishes his wicked opposite, Theoden is instantly restored to his vital self with the saving private Ryan dissolve. Back back, back to his, his better-looking version. And I think George is doing something interesting with that concept when it comes to Stannis and Melisandre. He's indulging in it with one hand, but undercutting it with the other. Like, yes, Melisandre draws from Stannis' life force, whatever that even means, to make her shadow babies. And yes, he gets gaunter and older-looking as a result, exactly as as in that that trope. And yes, she has a huge impact on Stannis' decision-making, especially after she starts showing him visions directly in A Storm of Swords instead of just describing them to him. But... No matter what Alistair Florent tells Davos in the Storm of Swords to justify his self-serving betrayal, there's never any indication that Stannis has actually snapped, that he's not in his right mind anymore, that he's being hypnotized or puppeteered. (laughs) He is the same man he always was, and he is making decisions, both good and ill, that are rooted in his background and his beliefs, and he is bringing those to the table with Melisandre. She's not wiping out the man that existed and replacing him with this new one. So when Davos thinks to himself that Cresson drank a cup of death to, quote, free Stannis from Melisandre, I say Stannis could be free of her any he wants to. And when Davos wonders, what has she done to him later in the book? I say she's done less than he thinks. And in that light, I think we can see that Cresson was trying to kill Melisandre for a decision that Stannis made and that he was doing so in the name of some very questionable assessments. And the irony here is that uh, the rationalist skeptic is the one who gave free rein to his prejudices and emotional turmoil, and the mystical prophet is the one who read the situation pragmatically. I love how George writes said that as soon as both Cresson and Davos decide to murder Melisandre, They are being they are framed as having been seduced by her logic, that they are thinking like her now, as they've made this decision to eliminate her. Crescent in this chapter suddenly decides, right before he has his nap, that the comet is his. The comet is for blood and murder, foretelling him, wait a minute, Crescent. (laughs) <laughs> Didn't you spend the whole chapter telling yourself and everyone that you shouldn't believe in omens and shouldn't base your policies on gods? And this is ridiculous, and we need to get back to rationality, please. But in that moment of weakness, all of a sudden, the minute you decided to kill Melisandra, you're you're in that same mindset. And when Davos says he's going to go after Melisandra and Storm of Swords, suddenly he decides that he's a warrior sent by God, and he doesn't have <laughs> to worry about hunger or illness or things like that. He just has to carry out his God's will. And I, I love that, because it's George showing you, you think you're Melisandra's complete opposite but you're actually her mirror image you're actually being seduced by her logic when you give in to your desire to kill her so in the end Melisandre wins not only because she lives and Crescent dies but because her side won the debate raging in Crescent's head throughout this chapter the educated maester a serious man to borrow from the Cohen brothers goes down denying her denying her power denying her magic denying her God Yet she smiles with pity because they both know he's wrong he dies on his knees before her, looking up just like he was looking up at the comet at the start of the chapter. And he knows that the omens were real, and Relor does have power here. An age of wonder and terror is upon us. Welcome to a clash of kings. Again, it's like we were saying, this is just such a <laughs> great, dramatic way to open a book. Like, you know, I, I read this chapter, and even though I know everything that's coming in the book, I'm, I still feel that excitement. Like, oh, man. What a wild new reframing of the story! I can't wait to see where this goes next.
0: Same, same. I mean, it's, it's it's such an interesting way of opening the chapter of having this debate between rationality, skepticism versus religion, and having that entire story flipped at the very end of it, so that the master becomes the person who is giving away to his giving, uh, putting his skepticism and his rationality aside, and trying to poison Melisandre and willing to make this kind of suicide by by lore type thing going on here. And yet, you know, you kind of get this perspective of Melisandre where she's constantly saying to Crescent, it is not too late to spill the wine. You could even make the argument, and I don't know if this is explicitly stated in the text, that maybe Crescent wasn't invited to dinner because Melisandre maybe saw Crescent tried to kill her in the flames It was like, let's, uh, let him sleep. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let him, let's try and get away from this, the prophecy. Let's try to for, for stall pro- this prophetic event from happening. Like this. That's really interesting that, that Melisandre takes a perspective
1: of almost mercy. Is that the way that you would put it about is Melisandre merciful here or attempting to be merciful? She is, which is so fascinating because so much of the story is like Davos is mercy. Davos is the merciful side of Stannis, but instead Stannis is going with Melisandre. And this is George showing you right away that it's, it's not that simple. That, yeah, I think you're, I, I love that idea that Melisandre was trying to spare Crescent by having Stannis not invite him because that dovetails so well with what she does in Davos in the Storm of Swords where Davos tries to kill her and then gets thrown in jail, but then Stannis tells him, actually, it was Melisandre who spared your life, who, who mm-hmm. demanded that you not be burned for trying to kill her, that you, in fact, be brought to me, because she knows that even though you guys disagree, that you support me and are as much a, a faithful servant to me as she is. And, yeah, even among all this grandiose big-picture stuff at the end of this chapter and how it relates to what's going on in the world and the rest of the book, my favorite moment of this chapter-closing scene is that murmured line from Melisandre to Crescent as she holds out the cup of death. It is not too late to spill the wine, Maester. And yeah, when George calls Melisandre the most misunderstood character in his saga, I I understand his frustration because he, (laughs) he lets you know what's really going on with her right there in her introductory scene. It is not too late to spill the wine. It's not too late to save yourself. I don't need you to die. And she says this to a man she knows full well is trying to kill her. So what does this say about her? That, again, like Varys, her terrifying willingness to sacrifice individuals for what she deems the greater good doesn't mean she's incapable of mercy and empathy and trying to defend the powerless. You can see it in Dance with Dragons when she reveals, as when she becomes a POV, that she's trying really hard to keep young Devon Seaworth alive for his father Davos' sake, for his father Davos' sake, despite his attempt in her life because she knows he's a good man. And so this is this is our glimpse past that shadow play I was talking about. This is our glimpse behind the ruby red curtain at the person, Melanie hmm. of Lot 7. There she is giving her would-be killer a chance to spare himself. And far from, like, cackling with satanic glee as he dies, which I could easily imagine, she meets his gaze with pity. And this makes Melisandre so much more complicated and humanized than she's often presented. But I want to be clear, I don't mean to suggest it exonerates her from everything <laughs> she's going to be doing in this series, because she, she justifies every brutal action she takes with her, her worldview. Everything is black and white. Right, Everything is, is night and day, love and hate, ice and fire. She laid that all out for Davos when she visits him in his cell in A Storm of Swords. But the very fact that she can empathize with and show mercy to Crescent, an enemy of R'hllor trying to strike her down, surely a servant of the Great Other by definition, <laughs> that ought to demonstrate to her that such a worldview is dangerously limited. Like the insistence that light cannot make common cause with darkness, that ignores Davos' vital point later on in this book that people are onions made of both. And unfortunately, this, this unrealistic binary that Melisandre has, it intersects so dangerously with Stannis and his own backstory and his own blind spots that you end up with a situation where neither of them feel like they can forgive deviations from the divinely ordained order, even as part of them senses the essential inhumanity of that decision. And so the king and the sorceress are scarier together than they ever could have been apart. And it's just like with Stannis, it's not that Melisandre lacks humanity. It's that she's not heeding her own humanity. And sadly, people will burn for it.
0: And, you know, as we're going to find out in A Dance with Dragons, even with Melisandre apart from Stannis, and Stannis saying, we will have no burnings, pray harder, Stannis still burns people.
1: I mean, granted, they're cannibals, but he still burns people, right? I mean, that's... There's always the granted. There's always the also, but except, but and, and unless. There's always those qualifying terms with Stannis. There's always another sentence. There's always another explanation. That's what makes it great.
0: Exactly. It makes it just a wonderful story. It makes these characters so fleshed out and entirely human, even a character like Melisandre, who may not be entirely human. We'll, we'll <laughs> probably find out who wins the winner, <laughs> at some
1: level. Exactly. That's what makes her interesting, is that she, on the one hand, she feels like the tropiest character in the story on the surface, like, ooh, sorceress coming to ruin right. everything, but... If you actually look at how George writes her, she's much more individualistic and specific and interesting than that.
0: Absolutely agreed there. So I I hope you guys have enjoyed that
1: discussion <laughs> about status at Belisandre
0: and Crescent and Davos and our own perceptions kind of in coming in conflict with the narrative and hopefully you've kind of gotten away from your camps of being super pro Stannis, super anti Stannis, and evaluating him as a as a character in the story as George has intended him to feel. And I think that takes us very nicely into our foreshadowing and groundwork section uh, of this, this podcast. Wow, I hope you guys are really enjoying this because we still got lots more to cover here. So the, the first thing, and we'll, we'll do these kind of briefly because we do have an excellent discussion at the end of, here, end of, end of this podcast here, is that the Strangler, the, uh, the poison that Crescent uses to attempt to poison Melisandre, well, guess what happens with the Strangler? You think that poison is gone? It ain't. Because it returns for the Purple Wedding, but this time it's deployed successfully against Joffrey, a great example of using the same plot device to produce two different outcomes. And here's your ugly, stupid, bad theory. All the people who are saying that Joffrey was poisoned by what well, well, choked on the pie, or there's something else going on there. No. No. God damn it, no. Crescent lays out exactly what happens when someone eats that poison, and, and that is exactly what happens to Joffrey at the end of that chapter. And George has also confirmed that it, the poison was... Was in the wine glass, but the the bad, stupid theories continue will never ever end.
1: They're gonna gonna turn you gray before your time, Jeff. But yeah, absolutely. I love how George does that where he does the setup here, but the payoff for it is in Storm of Swords because the Strangler doesn't actually work on Melisandre in this chapter. So we actually see, I mean, obviously it works on Crescent, but we actually see the Strangler lingered on at length in a successful assassination attempt a book and a half later when we've already had the the groundwork for it. And that's just, that's a wonderful kind of, kind of long con move on George's part. And we're talking about the purple wedding, but uh, the fool's crown ringing its sad little bells in this chapter, especially at the end. That puts me more in mind of the red wedding when you have uh, <laughs> Egon Frey, Jingle Bell Frey, with his fool's crown that is is dancing the sad little bells throughout the red wedding. And, of course, it puts me in mind of the bells, episode five of season eight of Game of Thrones. Turns out there might be a foreshadowing for this all over. You, you, you would think,
0: like, the bells, you know, Dan, as we talked about in Danny 10, the bells and Khal Drogo's hair and stuff like that, having some sort of... Emotional significance for Danny, the bells ringing here, and Crescent's helm having some emotional significance for the Red Wedding coming forward, and Aegon Frey going down, and the sad little bells, which is such a terrible, gut-wrenching part of the Red Wedding. I think it's one of the it's one of the most visceral portions of the Red Wedding when Catlin saws the uh, the Aegon Frey's neck, which is, which
1: uh, is terrible, it, terrible, it, terrible. It lends this kind of intimacy and wretchedness, which that chapter is not lacking for already, the Catalan right. Red Wedding chapter, but it's just. I don't want to say it's the perfect ending because it's so hard to read, but it is—it is absolutely perfect. And then I, I, again, it's the classic case that George already had in mind, maybe, or maybe he came back to this for inspiration. Was like, you know what, I have to follow up on this. This fool's crown thing is such a great, mm-hmm. sad way to undercut the pretensions. I got to use this, and he used it again.
0: And finally, for our foreshadowing groundwork section, we have Davos and Crescent interacting at the feast itself. Where Davos is being like, oh, God, we're all going to die here because apparently Melisandre's revealed before Crescent entered the scene that, quote, before she's done, we're all likely to see what Patchface saw, I fear. The bottom of the sea. Oh, Davos. Davos, 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 Davos. If only you knew. And in fact, you know, he brings it up in his first chapter, too, where he's like, I, I think we're all going to end up at the bottom of the sea. And, um. What happens to Davos at the end of A Clash of Kings? He ends up at the
1: bottom of the sea at the Battle of Blackwater, his ship blown out from underneath him, and he, just, he describes the Blackwater Rush as the gates of hell as Tyrion springs the wildfire chain trap. And yeah, I love that. The Battle of Blackwater is, of course, the climactic event of Clash of Kings. George devotes like a half dozen chapters to covering it. (laughs) Everything after in the book feels kind of like a postscript by comparison. The Blackwater is just that good. And I love that George is doing the groundwork for that event right here at the beginning of the book, already seeding in that this is where this is all leading to. And of course, we will will talk so much about not only the Blackwater, but the build up to the Blackwater as we go through Clash of Kings. Yes, indeed. So taking us away from foreshadowing groundwork into our theory slash discussion portion of the episode... As we all know, Stannis Baratheon got the happiest of all endings on HBO's Game of Thrones. He walked into the sunset, was declared as zora high, and the king by all of Westeros. And no, no, of course none of that happened. <laughs> in season five, episode nine, Stannis sacrificed Shireen while on the, the march to Winterfell, on Melisandre's advice, uh, that resulted in a lot of his army deserting him. Catelyn hanging herself, Melisandra abandoning him to go back to the Wall, and later get involved in Jon's plot. And Stannis himself eventually committed a suicide by army, going up against the Boltons <laughs> before Brienne <laughs> finished him off. So, what does that entail for his character and Shireen's, for that matter, in the books? What will be the same? What will be different? These are the kind of questions that have have dominated the discourse around the character since season five, with a particularly important question for us. Why do we call ourselves Stannis fans after season five, episode nine, exposed him as the villain David Benioff and Dan Weiss knew him to be all along? Now, uh, Jeff... As someone who uh, did not buy into the Stannis burns Shireen in the books theory prior to that episode, what was it like watching that episode as someone who did not believe the theory? Well, it, it wasn't just like, it, there was a lot of things that
0: were going on emotionally for me at that time in my life. Uh, one of the things being, you know, Stannis Burning Shireen, which is, you know, totally insane event But the other thing too is like my my Battle of Ice theory was just totally blown out of the water. What, right? Right no, I'm just kidding. Go listen to our Nightlife episode on, on Patreon. Um, it's interesting, right? Because I, as a, I wasn't a, I I didn't believe that Stance would do this before I saw the episode on air. You know, there was, uh, and I I had done some reading and and some writing on this before the event actually happened. But uh, broadly speaking, in in 2002, so it's Martin at a convention that George was at. He was asked, so what's Stance going to do when Mel decides to sacrifice Shireen? Uh, Now that's actually, and and the person who's recounting this says, now that actually startled him a bit. He said, well, yes, it's uh, the blood of the king. Then he just handed me the, a bowl of cheese doodles. I'm not sure if that meant anything <laughs> at all. So so being me, I just assumed that was indicating that Melisandre would sacrifice Shireen without Stannis' knowledge. Silly. Silly me. But boy, oh boy, do I remember my um, very placid, unemotional state when season five, episode nine aired. This wasn't how it was supposed to be. Stannis would never, never sacrifice Shireen didn't D&D read the Theon sample chapter from the Winds Winner where Stannis tells Justin Massey that if he dies <laughs> that Massey's supposed to see Shireen onto the Iron Throne and Shireen, is, um, and Shireen is still back at Castle Black while Stannis is three days right from Winterfell? Impossible. Outrageous. Outlandish. Ah, oh boy. I remember being a big dodo about that time, tweeting about it in ways that fill me with a deep Catholic sense of shame and regret. Now, in my defense because I always have to defend myself, I do think that the sheer horror of watching a child burn at the stake was having an emotional impact on me. And why the fuck wouldn't it have an emotional impact on me or anyone else who's watching it unless you're a psychopath? So, But the thing that happened is that the hashtag discourse got heated back in 2015. Lots of people, including myself, were shouting about Stannis could and never would do this thing. That D&D hated Stannis. They misunderstood his character, which... A little bit true, um, but it was only that I was watching uh, Elliot Garcia Jr. and Lennon Antonson's video after the fact and watching and, and how angry they were that D&D, well, I'll get to that in a second. And then also I was watching a uh, a post recap of what Rhea Westeros, her friends, Yoke Boy and Lady Gwyn, and Aziz and Ashea from Mr. Westeros, what they used to do, and I think they, st- they still did through season eight, the recap of The Dance of the Dragons, and it began to dawn on me that I... Might be wrong. Might be wrong. Then I started to do a closer read of some of Davos' chapters in A Storm of Swords. And it's kind of interesting. So, again, this is four years ago now. But back around that time, uh, a mutual friend of ours and guest of the podcast, Eliana, was doing a book club. And they were going through A Storm of Swords down in D.C. over brunch with friends. And I happened to get down there for one of their book clubs. And it happened to be A Storm of Swords, Davos 4. And it really hit me that all the build wo- buildup, all the groundwork that George was putting in, especially in the books, but especially in A Storm of Swords, that finally convinced me. Then, coming back to this chapter, not not in this read, but in, a, in previous reads, I began to see that, yes, there is a lot of foreshadowing and groundwork that George was putting in for that act as happening. But Emmett, I have to turn it over to you because you were the smart one in this, this <laughs> dynamic. Here. You actually knew that this was coming all the way from the very, from the get go. So how did you, as someone who knew this was coming, how, how did you react to this
1: moment? I don't know if I'm the smart one, maybe just the cynical one. <laughs> but yeah, Stannis burning Shireen is something I have thought was coming for a long, long time. I got the sense that Shireen's fate was going to be horrible just from reading the books. And then when I was first reading, people theorize about the books on, on message boards and on Tumblr and so forth. The idea of Stannis burning Shireen came to the fore along with the quotes that support it. And I was like, yep, that sounds like it's absolutely happening. So for me, watching that episode of the show wasn't one of like surprise and, and shock beyond just, again, the horror of watching the child burned at the stake, as you say. But a sense of, yeah, this is right, but the details... That would really give it its oomph and its, its specific meaning aren't there. In other words, it's a lot of the same way I felt about Daenerys in season eight. To get back to those Danny Stannis parallels. Like, yes, I see that this yes. is the end game. I see you've been building to it to a certain extent. But I think a lot of the details George put in that you might have thought were extraneous were actually really important to giving this m- meaning. And the same thing is true with Stannis and Shireen. I think you can see that if you look at how Benioff and Weiss have talked about this. David Benioff said regarding Stannis burning Shireen and George telling them about that. It was one of those moments where I remember looking at Dan and thinking, that's so horrible and so good in a story sense. The very first time we saw Stannis and Melisandre, they were burning people alive on the beaches of Dragonstone. Just not true, by the way. And it's, all, it's really all come to this. There's been so much talk of King's Blood and the power of King's Blood, and it all leads ultimately fatally to Shireen's sacrifice, and it's one of the most horrible moments we've shot. It's obviously the hardest choice he's ever made in his life, and for Stannis it comes down to ambition versus familial love, and for Stannis, sadly, that choice is ambition. Dan Weiss said people who watch Game of Thrones don't see the same world as Stannis and Melisandre. To those characters, magic is real and it works. That's something fun about this genre because when magic is real and you can see it with your own eyes in the show, it gives you a window into the heads of people who believe irrational things on faith. I can't really get my head around how these people operate in our world as they're so completely disconnected from the way I process the world. So in a strange way, fantasy is a cockeyed window into the heads of people who would do something terrible for an irrational reason. (laughs) So for me, these quotes demonstrate an understanding of the structural logic involved in Stannis burning Shireen. Like David Benioff said, it's so good in a story sense. But I think it's also a misreading of the meaning of that moment and what it leads us to conclude about these characters. I think the showrunners, like a lot of people, view Stannis and Melisandre purely through the lens of modern skepticism of religious claims. As Dan Weiss was saying, a cockeyed window into the heads of people who have irrational reasons to do what they do. But... Given that Stannis starts the story in the books as an out-and-proud atheist and is only a partial convert, as late as a dance with dragons, as you say, pray harder, being his response (laughs) to the notion that R'hllor can help them, I think the most accurate lens through which to look at this moment, Stannis burning Shireen, as as, is as a genuine ethical struggle between the most obviously good end you could have, save the world, and the most obviously bad means you could have, sacrificing your child. And while we are, of course, meant to flinch away from such an act— I don't think George is approaching it as an act of pure irrationality, the way Dan Rice describes it. I think he's I think he's writing it as one driven by a horribly seductive logic that could plausibly claim someone who is, quote, in spite of everything, a righteous man. Yeah, I, I think you're 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 spot on there. And
0: you're also hitting something that hit me too, about the act, and, and, I, and I wrote about this in terms of, of Tyrion's role in the possible burning of King's Landing, come the endgame of King's Landing, and probably in a Dream of Spring, and that like they were hitting like the plot points correctly, but the buildup and the structure wasn't there to get them to the point that George is likely building them to, and the points that George is building them to start very early on. It, it starts in this chapter, in the prologue chapter of A Clash of Kings. You've got Shireen's Dragon Dream, which we talked about in the first part of this uh, of this prologue analysis. You have it very, built up very early on with Shireen's dragon dreams, where it says, quote, I had bad dreams, Shireen told him, about the dragons. They were coming to eat me. And, you know, that's really kind of something similar that we see in Bran's point of view in, in A Game of Thrones.
1: Right, when he's dreaming about the gargoyles coming loose from Winterfell to prey on him and to kind of recreate Jaime throwing him from the window. You see Shireen in the same direction where it's not that the dragons are literally going to eat her, but the, the dreams of dragons, the overall evocation of fire god and firepower that Stannis and Melisandre are getting caught up in. That's what's going to claim Shireen. I think you see George already filtering that through her dreams. You have a very similar dream from a Tiora Toland in the Winds of Winter Ariane 1, her, her first released Winds of Winter chapter. That she has had dragon dreams, probably prophetic dragon dreams about when Danny and Young Griff will come together, and so it's, it's that same imagery of, of these these dreams of dragons claiming not just lives but innocent lives and, and children's lives.
0: Right, and it also strikes me too that Shireen is a descendant of Aegon the Fifth Targaryen, and that A Clash of Kings was written around the time that The Hedge Knight was written, the novella that George's nineteen ninety eight novella, and that Dragon Dreams feature very prominently where you have Darren the Drunkard who has the Dragon Dreams of the dragon falling on top of, of Duncan being and Dunk being involved in the death of a dragon. Well, it's not like, it's, it's metaphorical, but it's also literal as the same sort of sense here. So I like your interpretation of the Dragon Dreams about the dragons that they were coming to eat me, meaning that the dreams of dragons are coming to eat Shireen, the dreams of possibly Stannis birthing dragons again through eggs, as we'll talk about here in a little bit. That is actually the thing that's coming to... Coming into play, this, the narrative set up and foreshadowing
1: groundwork for it. Absolutely. Elsewhere in A Clash of Kings, I think you can see George building to Stannis burning Shireen with the death of Renly. Now, of course, we'll argue about whether that was justified and how it's different from Shireen. Of course, there are plenty of arguments to be had, but when it comes down to the core, like you have that interaction between Davos and Salador Sen when they're talking about whether Stannis will burn Edric Storm. He will not do it, said Davos. He could not harm his own blood. And Salah responds, oh, Lord Renly will be glad to hear this. And Davos <laughs> makes a distinction. It says Renly was a traitor in arms. Edric Storm is just a boy. You know, he, he makes all those distinctions. But the point is that this is a step down to hell. That, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not the same as the later steps, but it does lead you there. It's the first step that gets you closer to Edric Storm, gets you closer to Shireen. And then you have, a, a, even more tellingly, the legend of Azor Ahai and Nissa, Nissa that Salador lays out for Davos in the latter's first chapter in Clash of Kings. And you have the Azor Ahai being full of woe and sorrow, but needing to save the world and throw back the darkness. And he had the, the wife Nissa, Nissa the person he loved most, bear her breast and know that I love you best of all that is in this world. And Azor Ahai thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. And her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon. And Salador is clearly expressing this as a horror story, as he says to Davos, Now do you see my meaning? Be glad it is just a burnt sword that his grace pulled from that fire. Too much light can hurt the eyes, my friend. And fire burns. So I think that's pretty clear setup of Stannis not only giving it all to fight the others, but specifically sacrificing uh, that which he loves best of all in the world. That which represents his, his shriveled little soul, as I said last week, and that's Shireen
0: absolutely and you know stannis is the azora high reborn figure in melisandre's prophecies as she puts out in davos's first chapter and that prophecies end, and those prophecies end up getting expanded in a storm of swords, where you have melisandre's case for burning edric storm right we talked about renly being one step down the ladder Edric Storm is yet another step down the ladder.
1: The second part of the threefold revelation with the third being Shireen. And you know, you have Melisandre making her case to burn Edric Storm and it, it feels so strongly like a dress rehearsal for her making the case to burn Shireen later on in the series. Like she says, your brother's blood, a king's blood. Only a king's blood can awake the stone dragon. Well, Shireen has king's blood as well. He is only one baseborn boy against all of the boys of Westeros, and all of the girls as well, against all of the children that might ever be born in all of the kingdoms of the world. I guarantee that's the argument Melisandre makes when it comes to burn Shireen, that it's it's her against every single child. Or she says, Azora high tempered lightbringer, but the heart's blood of his own beloved wife. If a man with a thousand cows gives one to God, that is nothing. But a man who offers the only cow he owns? Well, what's what's the the proverbial only cow that Stannis has? Shireen. His only Shireen. child, his only heir. And that's what Melisandre says will make it meaningful. And it's not just that Melisandre is making these arguments in the Storm of Swords. It's that Stannis is gradually being convinced by them. At first he says, no, I will not burn Edric Storm. He's innocent. That's terrible. I will not do it. These dragon dreams suck. But as the book goes along, she gets under his skin and he he makes he argues to Davos, he may be the best boy who ever drew breath and it would not matter. My duty is to the realm. And this is where you see how Melisandre's argument has worked on him. How many boys dwell in Westeros? How many girls? How many men? How many women? The darkness will devour them all, she says. The night that never ends. She talks of prophecies. A hero reborn in the sea. Living dragons hatched from dead stone. She speaks of signs and swears they point to me. I never asked for this, no more than I asked to be king. Yet dare I disregard her? We do not choose our destinies, yet we must. We must do our duty, no? Great or small, we must do our duty. And then that line that we always quote, If I must sacrifice one child to the flames to save a million from the dark, sacrifice is never easy, Davos, or it is no true sacrifice. Like, that just spells out exactly what's going to happen. You have this situation where the others are threatening everyone and Melisandre's worst dire warnings have come true, and that's the situation in which Stannis is going to be asked to burn Shireen.
0: Right, and like you said earlier, it's not that Stannis ever says, like, I was wrong to consider burning Edric storm. He never comes across that way. He comes across with the perspective I was putting the, the throne in front of the kingdom, which is, a, which is a fine. It's it's great. It's it's great. It's one of the things that makes Stannis a, a sympathetic character and one that we, we like and support at some level. But he never says we should never have burned Edric Storm or ever even considered it. In fact, because... What does Stannis do to get up to the wall? Well, he burns his in-law. He bor- he burns Lord Alistair Florent for treason. Yes, obviously. But Melisandre has quite a different interpretation on why they burned Alistair. As Davos recounts in *The Dance with Dragons*, Melisandre had given Alistair Florent to her God on Dragonstone to conjure up the wind that bore them north. Lord Florent had been strong and silent as the queen's men bound him to the posts, as dignified as any half-naked man could be hoped to be. But as the flames licked up his legs, he had begun to scream and his screams had flown them all the way to Eastwatch by the sea, if the Red Woman could be believed. So again, Alistair is related to Stannis by marriage, but it does work to set the groundwork for Stannis' willingness to, quote, kinslay, even if Stannis and Alistair are only related by marriage. So it's Renly, his brother, Edric Storm, his nephew, and Alistair Florin, his uncle-in-law, that Stannis kills, tries to burn, or actually burns, respectively.
1: Again, it's all leading him to that decision. That's set up for situations that are justifiable, maybe, or at least more justifiable, but it's all part of that, again, that horribly seductive logic, where once Melisandre has gotten Stannis to buy into step one and two, step three starts becoming, starts to sound a lot more reasonable to him. And again, you have this, this framing of Stannis as the articulation of an archetype. And as, as a version of a kind of person we see elsewhere in the story, like you have the legend of Night's King, also in Storm of Swords, in Bran's chapter at the Nightfort. He'd been the 13th man to lead the Night's Watch, a warrior who knew no fear. And that was the fault in him, for all men must know fear. A woman was his downfall. A woman glimpsed from atop the wall, with skin as white as the moon hint, hint. Mm-hmm. and eyes like blue stars so she's like the ice version of Melisandre fearing nothing he chased her and caught her and loved her though her skin was cold as ice and when he gave his seed to her he gave his soul as well which is a part of how Davos describes how Stannis looks after his, his rit- rituals with Melisandre Night's King brought her back to the fort and proclaimed her a queen and himself her king and with strange sorceries he bound his sworn brothers to his will. For 13 years they had ruled, Night's King and his corpse queen, till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Dorman of the Wildlings had joined to free the Watch from bondage. After his fall, when he was found he had been sacrificing to the others, all records of Night's King had been destroyed, his very name forbidden. So clear parallels, Stannis getting seduced by this, this pale witchy woman and uh, ending up in sorcery and sacrifice, ending up being like deserted and his very name forbidden, the same way Stannis' legacy kind of falls apart as we see on the show and probably will similarly in the books mm-hmm. and I think you, you can see George setting up that that's kind of the the ending for Stannis that that's where things are going to go and you can really see that when Stannis claims the Knight Fort as his own seat at the end of Storm of Swords and Selyse goes there is going to go there to help set things up in a dance with dragons which makes me think yeah the the, the Nightfort is George's way of saying hey Stannis may call himself a High, but you know he's got some things in common with Night's King as well <laughs> and look how that ended.
0: Stannis is an archetype for a lot of characters, but there's a lot of archetypes that are influencing Stannis' character as well, to include the Night King. After Stannis says he's going to take up the Night For as the King, we do have in A Dance with Dragons and that Theon Winswinter sample chapters some more uh, groundwork that we have going on there. where we, we did reference this earlier before, but where Stannis says, I will have no burnings, pray harder, versus Stannis um, burning the Peaceberry Men for Cannibalism. Again, Stannis is not opposed to burning people. That, that's just, that should be completely resolved at this point. Because in the Winds of Winter sample chapter, in that Theon chapter, Stannis wants to burn Theon, where Theon says, unchain me and I will serve you. As you serve Roose Bolton and Rob Stark, Stannis snorted, I think not. We have a warmer ended mind for you, Turncloak, but not until we're done with you. So we have uh, more foundation for Stannis burning people to include Theon. Again, these are people that are not his blood, but again, that whole idea that Stannis is beyond burning people, that he's advanced, he's... He's advanced morally to the, to the sense that he's not going to inflict horrible pain on people is um, not true in the narrative. And and it's not true in reality
1: as well. It's it's definitely not true. And you have that, that slippage where, you know, Stannis has that line you pointed out about how if, if I die just a mess, you got to seat my daughter on the Iron Throne. And people still point to that as evidence that he won't burn Shireen in the books. But he also says in the Storm of Swords, at first, again, I will never burn Edric Storm. And the next time we see him, he's going, well. Maybe I will, though. So, like, that's... He is uh, gradually convinced. He's gradually seduced. Melisandre wears him down. He's not on board with all this stuff from the get-go, but he gets talked into it. And so, in terms of how this is going to play out plot-wise, given where Stannis is, is right now... If you haven't already, go you can go over to patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, and check out our, our Night Lamp episode that we have for patrons, uh, $5 a month or more. That's where we lay out how we think Stannis is, is not going to die, as the pink letter suggests, but actually win the Battle of Ice. I think he's uh, likely to get uh, politically rejected by the North in spite of winning that battle. That fits Stannis' story that he has these military successes, but again, no one likes him. So politically, he gets screwed over that the North will instead... Uh, crown John Snow probably is king in the north, as we saw in season six, or I'm sure some of them will be a part of Sansa's faction, as we also saw with the Veil. But if Stannis is still a going concern at that point, they're going to turn on him. And then I think we might see the climax of Stannis' story happen at the Nightfort. Like he retreats in fury and rage back to the Nightfort where Selyse and Shireen have set up shop. And at that point, uh, he he makes the decision. But when it comes to Stannis' story, as we've been talking about in the prologue, that uh, so much of it has to do with the role his counselors play and who he's taking advice from and when he takes their advice and obviously that has to that was a critical part of Stannis burning Shireen in the show and I have to imagine it's going to be a critical part of Stannis burning Shireen in the books
0: right even if the plot foundation and the character work that is in the show is going to be different as we see in the books the work that the counselors do for Stannis is likely going to have an impact there, whether it's going to be their presence or their lack of presence. And this is a theory that I wrote about a couple of years ago, so I'll briefly outline it. But I think that there's a possibility that when Davos hears about the Golden Company seizing his homeland, seizing his homeland and taking his family hostage, that he might sail for them after he either returns Rickon to the north or leaves Rickon on on Skagos itself. You know, from A Clash of Kings onward, Davos has been set up to feel immense guilt over his abandonment of his family. And just prior to being freed from the Wolf's Den in A Dance with Dragons, he sends a letter telling his wife, Maria, how sorry he was for not being a better father and husband to her. Will him learning that Maria and his surviving kids are in danger of the Stormlands lead him to choose, quote, blood over honor? The same decision that Stannis made in choosing Robert over Ares, as we talked about before and if stan and if and if davos isn't present with stannis who who's going to speak for shireen when melisandre presents her choice of one child versus a million it, it feels like that it could be the, the it could be the case that without davos being there that melisandre will win out the argument ultimately and there won't be the opportunity for a character
1: like davos to smuggle shireen away from from the fire Oh, I think that's just completely true. In the show, of course, Dennis deliberately sends Davos away before burning Shireen. In the books, I think circumstances will conspire to keep him away, whether, as you say, he, he uh, leaves the North behind to go back to his kids, and I think there's a lot of resonance there, or whether he just gets stuck on Skagos or involved in like the White Harbor plotter. There's, there's any number of obstacles George will put in Davos' way, but I agree he has to do that because Davos is specifically the person who would never let this happen
0: the person who will let this happen is, of course, Melisandre, the other of the two major counselors for for Stannis. You know, I I think that Melisandre is likely going to have a crisis of faith similar to what we saw in season six, where she'll believe that R'hllor has abandoned her, maybe doesn't even exist. And then, but in the in the books it's a little bit different in that they push the pink letter and to season six as opposed to season five but i do wonder whether her finding out that stannis has died in the pink letter and that john is also dead you know it's somewhat similar again to season six of not exactly B for beat in terms of plot I, I do think that her faith will be restored by learning that stannis is alive he's actually won the battle of ice he's taken winterfell and Jon snow he's been resurrected by the power of ralor ralor maybe 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 R'hllor. who knows now restored in her faith in lore and his fiery power, who's to doubt that her belief in king's blood can't raise stone dragons? Who is to say that it can't be the case? But Winterfell isn't the traditional home of the Targaryens or dragons, so why would it really matter that, you know, Melisandre's faith is restored? There's no dragon eggs at Winterfell, right?
1: Right? Well, there might be. If, uh, if Vermax is right, I mean, if Mushroom is right about Vermax laying a clutch of eggs in the castle as part of the, the pact of ice and fire... There there might be eggs there. And I've theorized before that uh, them being uncovered might be part of what uh, Stannis and Melisandre uh, get up to with the burning of Shireen.
0: Yeah, I mean, it could be possible that if they end up leaving Winterfell, if they take the castle and then they're ejected by the Northmen or something else happens, that... They can take the dragon eggs with them. We do have a lot of theft of dragon eggs going on in the backstory and the histories, as, as we learned about Fire and Blood Volume 1. So with Davos potentially gone, Melisandre reviving her faith in her lore and the plot clues that George has laid are all well and good. There are also things we've covered in previous regular Patreon episodes, so go and check us out at patreon.com forward slash notacastASOF. So it's vital that we turn instead not just to the plot beats and the foreshadowing groundwork, but to the narrative and thematic reasons why Stannis would do this, why he would consent to putting a flame to his own daughter. And that's really where we have to look at Stannis' arc in terms of the end point.
1: And this has been the discussion that has been raging ever since season five, is how how do you look at Stannis' arc now? How do you conceive of this character knowing that that this is what George has in mind for him? Now, on the one hand... The murder of a child is the big no of A Song of Ice and Fire. This, framed consistently is the worst thing you can do as a person. And for good reason, especially in this case. Stannis sacrificing Shireen is an utter betrayal of their mutual love and his duty to protect the weak and the helpless, especially within his own family. On the other hand, George has presented scenarios in which the killing of a child could be argued as the least bad option. Like if you look at Jamie and Bran. Now, whether you buy Jamie's argument that he had to do it to save his kids or not... That's still the argument presented, and you can see George complicating the issue. Now, I get the argument that Stannis burning Shireen is the resolution of the hero versus villain question I was talking about earlier, and then it comes down definitively on the latter side, given what a horrible thing it is to to murder anyone by fire, or to murder your daughter, or to murder your daughter by fire. Just horrible. But looking at the groundwork above, looking at the foreshadowing for this, from too much light can hurt the eyes, Salador Sands' line, to Stannis' line, great or small, we must do our duty— I see a different conclusion emerging from the one Benioff and Weiss described of ambition and irrationality winning out. I think instead it's about the road to hell being paved with good intentions. That the desire to become the hero is what transforms you into the villain. That the warrior of light becomes the servant of darkness. That Azora High becomes Night's King. It's both from start to finish and it will always be both. Over the course of the series, Stannis undergoes a revitalization arc and a corruption arc. At the same time. That's what makes his Mm -hmm. story so brilliant and so difficult to like untangle. His ends improve and his means get worse. And that's what makes him such an insidiary, and that's what makes him such an insidious cautionary tale for John and Danny. You have to ask these questions. How easy is it to become exactly that which you're fighting? How easy is it for your moments of apotheosis backsliding into despair and annihilation, just like we saw with Danny in season eight? And the problem with Stannis on the show is not that they didn't understand the shape and structure of his story at all, is that they never invested in that apotheosis in the first place. They never built him up, and so pulling him down means less. They flattened his arc, and that deflates his his end. And as I said about Stannis last week, and as I always say about Stannis, the, the metaphor of the fiery heart does not work if you don't have a heart to cast into the fire in the first place. If Stannis is just purely irrational and purely aggressive and purely ambitious, there's no lessons here for us because we're not purely aggressive or purely ambitious. None of us are. So it's. I think we're supposed to see ourselves in Stannis and be disturbed by that and realize, oh, I can relate to that. Isn't that interesting? What does that say? And there's that... That eternally bittersweet sense of the better life Stannis could have lived, the better relationship he could have had with Robert and Renly. As he said, if Renly had done his duty, we could have smashed Lord Tywin. And you see this whole better life flashing in front of his eyes. That could have been. And that's only bittersweet if it actually could have happened, if Stannis could have been that person. If he was always going to be like this, then there's no tragedy to it. And there's the, the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead that I always come back to with Stannis about the, the plight of secondary characters who come, become aware of it. And there's the, the haunting line near the end when they're about to be consigned to oblivion. They're looking back on all their mistakes. And there must have been a time in the beginning when we could have said no, but somehow we missed it. Oh, well, we'll know better next time. <laughs> and that's that's how I feel about Stannis. Is the, 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 again, the two sides, the bittersweet ending is... You, you you get this glimpse of him actually being the person he's always wanted to be, and then it's gone, just like Shireen, just like Danny too. I mean, I think
0: that's when we're looking at these at, at Stannis as the archetype character for all of the major, some of the major decisions that major characters will make down the road. These kind of terrible, horrible choices that they decide on that it becomes sympathetic at, at some level, right? I mean, I think like when we're looking at it. We look at Stan's decision to burn Shireen. The decision, as he's presented, as will likely be presented in the books, is your child or all the children to include Shireen, right? It's it's the trolley train problem, right? As, as people have talked about, as potentially what it will be at work and what George is playing with a little bit here. Mainly the, the trolley train. If you guys have not seen uh, the good place, <laughs> is, <laughs> is is the uh, the idea that you steer the train towards and kill someone that you love. One, you have only two options. You can steer the train one way, the trolley one way, and kill ten thousand people, or you can steer the, tra- the train, the trolley, <laughs> the trolley one way, the other way, and kill one person that you love very deeply. Like, what is this? What is the decision that you make?
1: And there are definitely a lot of versions of that classic ethical problem, but I, def- I think you can see George working on one here, where it's in order to save the world, Stannis has to give up that which he loves about the world. And so you get this question of, well, what did it profit you to gain the world and lose your soul? What are you left with? If you actually successfully saved the day, but you burned Shireen, what did you save? And it's that right. that, 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 that melancholy feeling of, of your victory turning to ash in your mouth. And that's, that's really what, what defines is Stannis for me as a character and what makes him, I think, the, the best written character in the series is that, that sense of duality and that sense of melancholy and bittersweetness that goes with that duality that you, 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 you could have resolved yourself, but you'll, you'll, you'll never be able to, to give up this aspect of yourself that wants more, that has to keep up with Robert. And that's the best in him, but it's also the worst in him. It is that. So...
0: I think that about close. I think that about closes up for the Clash of Kings prologue, in these in in our fifteen hour series on the, on the Clash <laughs> of Kings prologue. We we spend as much time analyzing this chapter as George probably spent writing it and rewriting it. So we hope you guys would appreciate it. As always, thank you guys so much for listening to us. It's a it's a pleasure doing this. I mean, uh, we we we're, we're on from a Game of Thrones now. We're on to a Clash of
1: Kings and. It, it's it's nice being in a, in a new book and it's also nice sharing this journey with you guys as our listeners absolutely, it's it's very refreshing and very exciting at the same time so as always guys, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, etc check out our Patreon if you have not already at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F we got a, a lot of new uh, benefits and rewards and interesting stuff coming your way as we set up new tiers and we also recently hit our, our $5,000 a month stretch goal so we'll be uh, getting more information to you coming soon about the rewards unlocked there you can uh, follow us on Twitter at A S O I A F or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can follow me at Poor Quentin on Twitter, and you
0: can follow me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and our website is wars and my website is warsandpoliticsvicesandfire and one of our new benefits of joining our patron at the High Lords and Ladies level is that you get a thanks from us at the end of every episode now. So if you guys are a part of that patron tier, become one. Shoot us a message to let us know what your specific title is, because we got a bunch of really great titles here. So we wanted to thank uh, the following people for becoming our High Lords and High Ladies. The Lord of the Squishers and War of the Deep. Lord Quint, Esquire, the Warden, the Wolf in the West. Sir Sorcedelica, Lady Veneras of House Colgarian. The First for Name, the Overwork, the Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, the First Draft, Queen of the Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game. Game of thrones portraitress of the realm lady realist of the seven kingdoms creative arts and maker of drawings and i did encourage her to make that title as long as possible lady of a thousand words Septon eastwood of introvert isle Septed marybald the person who asked the question at the beginning of this episode the shoeless sage and all of our other nameless and anonymous high lords and ladies who did wish to remain an option we do appreciate all of your guys supporting us and, and definitely joining that tier
1: Thank you so much for joining us, guys, and, and taking part in our new Patreon tiers. And yeah, well, Vanessa deserves every single one of those titles, so mm-hmm. let her be as self-indulgent with them as torment, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so, everybody, join us next week for Arya's first chapter in The Clash of Kings, and also her second, and also her third. <laughs> We're going to do the exact opposite thing with Arya's early chapters in the book as we did with the prologue. We split the prologue in two. We are combining Arya's first three chapters in Clash into one episode. Because while her early chapters in the book certainly aren't bad, there's lots of good things to say about them, they are short, and they're kinda repetitive. If we did individual episodes on in each one, we would be out of new things to say about the third. We'd just be saying, oh, yep, so things are dangerous, and Joran's kinda mean but has a good heart, and, you know, same things we be said about Arya too. <laughs> and we want to we want to avoid that, so we're going to do what we haven't done since Sansa 1 and Edward 3 of A Game of Thrones, and we're going to combine them into a single episode, and we hope you enjoy.
0: Absolutely, so thank you guys so much for listening, thank you for supporting us on Patreon, and we will see you guys next week.